Okay, everybody, welcome to Coach Menachem Bernfeld tonight on a beautiful winter Sunday night over here. Um, thank you for joining us. Tonight is Shear 167. And again, I first want to start off thanking everybody who uh, joins us, every week, and for the viewers that uh, text out on the WhatsApp statuses and uh, tell people about the program. Like I always say, please tell friends and family, you never know what's negated to who. And um, by sharing it, like I said, not every topic is for everybody, but by sharing it, you never know who you're going to help. And uh, so please post it, let people know about it. And if anybody wants to join us, uh, you could join You could join the WhatsApp chats. I said you every week to flyer. WhatsApp me at 848-525-0066. Save my number. I'll send you flyers on stream every Sunday morning, afternoon. Today was like I sent it out like around 9 o'clock, but whatever. Try to send it out in the morning. Or you go to benachemburnfeld.com and he can send you the flyers, the replays, and all the good zachem that come out of Coach Menachem. And for the people that are watching the replay of this on YouTube, you can click on the subscribe button and click on uh, the like button. So every week when Menachem uploads it, you get to share and you get to be part of it. Usually Menachem uploads it right after the share as soon as he's able to. And uh, you get to watch everything. It's unbelievable the feedback that we get. And Baruch Hashem, it's been unbelievable. We have a lot of amazing share coming up. Uh, first of all, I want to first thank all the advertising sponsors for promoting us, the Lakewood Scoop, Ellie and Ariel for Five Town Central. And a special thank you to Chayla Kalf from JCN for promoting us on all the digital Jewish platforms. Again, if anybody's here the first time, every Sunday night at 9.30, on this um, Zoom ID, we have different shirim, different topics. We're going to have different rabbanim, different therapists, different people, leaders in in their in their fields. And um, please join us next week, December twenty fourth. It's not confirmed yet, but I'm hopefully going to confirm it. Depends on the schedule. For Shimon Russell will be joining us. We're trying to get into the topic of uh, crisis chinuch and general chinuch. So uh, hopefully that will be the shear. When it's not hundred percent confirmed, but we'll get into that. And again, whatever the show will be next week, please join us. They're usually meaningful. They're deep. And uh, there's a lot of content in it. Tonight we have the schus and the honor of having once again, Joey, it's a schus, once again, you know, to have a, a, the big Bala Musa, Bala Joey Rosenfeld used to live in the Five Towns. Now he made Aliyah to Israel. He left us all here in Gullis over here. But uh, Macham will be joining him very soon. And thank you for coming. I think it's the third time. And, you know, all the stream have been deep and uh, very meaningful. So thank you for coming on again. He actually was supposed to come on he asked to come on right when the war started to talk about a little bit of this topic. And then we pushed it for a few weeks ago. And then I had to cancel on him because uh, my brother was nifted that week. So we uh, had to had to text him and uh, this. But uh, it's meant to be this week for whatever reason. They just wanted him to come on this week. And we're going to start off first with the Gematria. Tonight's share 167. And our friend over here, the CEO of Coach Menachem Bernfeld, is going to give the Gematria for 167, Reb Joey. And you're going to let us know if it's a good Gematria. Okay, deal? Zoom share number number 167, the, the redemption of trauma, what Primus Terry can teach us about chaos and stability. One thing definitely that Primus Terry can, can teach us, that Hashem will never forsake us. And we got the Gematria of 167, the Chidloya the will never forsake us, no matter what situation we find ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. We'll go through the program. We'll see if it works. Okay, we're going to start off first with Coach Coach Benachem Berfeld. It's a very broad topic. We want to try to understand why we're here tonight, what we're trying to glean from tonight's conversation. Coach Benachem, what are we trying to cover tonight? Welcome. Welcome, everyone, to another Let's Get Real with Coach Benachem Baruch Hashem with a lot of Siyat Vishmai. We're doing tonight number 167. And like we heard, it's supposed to have a Rosenfeld back and... Yeah, discussing um, 
a little bit of current event, redemption of trauma. Talking about trauma, Bechlal, is a big topic. And um, we'll see where it goes. So first of all, I hope everyone had a beautiful Hanukkah. Even though we are in the midst of a crisis, even some people maybe forgot, but there's a lot going on. And I think that's one of the questions that we're going to try to answer tonight is while we are going through a crisis, while a person has something that is dealing with challenges in life, how to be able to continue to take those steps and um, do what, what it needs to do, even though it's 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 hard. And I think many people feel that way now. The Chlolius, you know, in general, what's going on in the world, and then everybody in their own in their own life, everybody, whatever they're going through. Hanukkah is the last mitzvah that the Rabbanon left us with before we went into Golis. And uh, they felt we needed Hanukkah, that little bit of light that we should hold on to. So that while we're going through the tunnel, we should, you know, we're waiting for the light at the end of the tunnel when Mashiach comes. But we need some light while we're going through, while we're in Golis. To hold on to. And that's the nearest Hanukkah. Hopefully we'll be able to hold on until Mashiach comes. There are many people who are sitting in their room and they suffer. <laughs> well, the trauma that they went through, whatever this their story is, and they're having a very hard time, can't figure out how to take that next step. It's just very hard for them to just do what they need to do. And then there are those who outside, they look very successful. They're successful people in life. And you might be looking at them thinking, I wish my life would look like his or hers. Wow, look, it looks like they're really, really successful. But many times those people have a room in their mind that they struggle struggle with their own inner thoughts or beliefs that they have, whatever they went through. And they can sometimes have the same hardships. They both people sit in their room, whether it's a room physically or in the mind, and have a hard time, nowhere to turn, and no one to talk to, especially those that look successful. And they have that real deep, lonely feeling of no one will ever understand what they're going through. And uh, many times they're embarrassed. Go to a friend, make a phone call, send an email. It's 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 It could be very hard. And I'll tell you, being in this line now for a while, whether it's coach, coaching people one-on-one -on -one or trying to spread all the awareness that we do every Sunday nights, trying to spread it globally, information, sending it out to everybody out there, I can tell you, the emails that I get, people send anonymous emails, and many times the first time that they open up, first time they have, they feel they can, they're probably, they're in so much pain that they feel they have to send an email to someone. And it there it is. I can open my emails, and there are people sitting. It's hard. These stories that come in, not that I can help them, Again, I'm not a therapist, but what I do is try to create a space 
where they can feel somebody is listening to them. And that's about it. That's about it. And that's the beginning, many times the beginning of healing, just to make that extra step, take, you know, send that email, make a phone call, speak to someone. Not easy. And it might not work. But to do it, and then hopefully you get a response, and slowly you get some fresh air, and then hopefully we can guide, guide them to the right place and what they need. So here we are. Many of you have sent me emails, and and it's amazing just to be able to do that. And if you have never done that before, find someone. It doesn't have to be me, but to find someone where you can pick up the phone just to talk just let them know where you are tell them what you're feeling especially for those successful people out there who many times the reason they can't stop is because of trauma if he stops being successful he has to show the world that he's successful and there's a reason behind that so the topic tonight is is very broad and we'll try to define what does trauma mean and hopefully we'll be able to help with the awareness, again, it's not individual, but as much as possible to guide and shed some light in Mitzvah Hashem. Thank you, Rabbi Rosenfeld, to be with us tonight. And we should have a lot of siyat and Mitzvah Hashem. Beautiful. Okay, so let's get into it over here. Okay, so tonight we titled tonight's share The Redemption of Trauma and the Trauma of Redemption. What Panimah Satari can teach us about chaos and fixing it and stability. Um, I'm going to read Joey's uh, bio, and then we're going to get into it. So again, the topic is about trauma and some what things are going on in the world now, and this general trauma, just a very deep, deep program. Hopefully, we'll get a lot of clarity on this topic. From Joey Rosenfeld, LCSW, is a psychotherapist who specializes in addiction, anxiety, and depression. He directed a spiritual program at a substance abuse treatment center for a decade now, and runs a private practice as well as shares tours and unifies psycho psych psychologically with panemias to thousands across the world via in person or online forums, additionally, he's the mashpia of the light revealed, a recovery project of the living room. Rabbi Joey lives in Israel with his wife and his children. He moved there. He made Aliyah. He left us in America over here. But uh, it's supposed to have me here tonight. Rabbi Joey, open it up. Floor is yours. <clears throat> okay. Shalom Aleichem, everybody. Just to make sure you could hear me. Everyone's good? Okay. So first and foremost, Yashakoach to, to Menachem and Rav Asher for this incredible program and for hosting me again on it and the opportunity to share just a little bit of insight of my own, primarily of my own. It's anything you hear from me is my own in the sense that it's my humble understanding of information that I've received from experienced teachers, books, etc. But to share a little bit of insight, a person has something to share in this world. Each person has something to share. And Mamela finding opportunities to be able to do it um, is, is an incredible schuss, so, so thank you. And so just to start off, to kind of follow in line with what Rav Menachem was saying, the, the focus of tonight is going to be twofold. It's going to be to pick up a general view of what's happening in the process of trauma, and by picking up a general view of what's happening in the process of trauma, one will also, and this is most fundamental, one will also come to understand the pathway out of trauma. The title of the shir is not simply the redemption of trauma, but it is as well the trauma of redemption. Meaning to say that when we focus on trauma, and we focus on trauma in a general perspective, 
What we will also be gaining insight into is the pathway and the steps necessary to extricate ourselves and pull ourselves out of the trauma. Now, this paradigm of healing, this paradigm of healing that's primarily inherent within the Torah, that in order to find the path out of something, you first and foremost have to understand the problem itself, and that the problem itself also already holds the path out of it, this is the thing that is referred to in the Torah as mamtik mar bamar, that we sweeten the bitter with the bitter. That Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to provide water to the Jewish people. They came to the water after complaining. They tasted the water and the water was bitter. There was a continued bitterness. Moshe Rabbeinu took a tree and threw the tree into the water and sweetened the water. So the Ramban in the name of Chazal points out over there that it wasn't simply a miracle, but rather it was a miracle within a miracle. It was a nes besoch nes. What was the nes besoch nes? The nes was that a tree sweetened the water. The miracle within the miracle was that the tree itself that sweetened the bitter waters was bitter itself. And we find this paradigm of sweetening the bitter with the bitter. That that from the forest itself comes the handle for the axe, as Chazal tells us, that the forest represents those things that block our vision from clear paths in this world. And very often it's from within the problem itself, from within the forest itself, that we will uncover the tools necessary to take down the forest. That from the forest itself comes the handle for the axe. And really, in truth, this paradigm goes to the very core of what it means to be a human being. Because it goes all the way back to our experience of our first trauma, which is being kicked out of Gan Eden, not even being kicked out of Gan Eden, prior to being kicked out of Gan Eden. The development of self-consciousness. After we ate from the chet of the Eitz Hadas, we underwent the first trauma where we became aware of ourselves and the world around us. So suddenly there was a deep shame, as Rabbi Nachum pointed out. The first thing that emerges when a person kind of really is affected by something in this world is a shame and a need to cover the self. And the natural thing that Adam and Chava wanted to do was to cover themselves with alei, that they cover themselves with the leaves of the tree. And Rashi points out that the tree itself that they tried to cover themselves with was the Eitz Hadas itself. And Rashi brings this paradigm that we see from here that one tries to heal themselves from within the very thing that causes them the problem. And what this means on a general perspective is that if we can delve deep into the mechanisms, what's happening in a general way at the heart of any trauma, we will also begin to understand the way to think about the opposite of trauma, how to pull ourselves out of the expectation that something negative will happen and to place ourselves in a position of hope for something positive happening. So generally speaking, trauma is not something that creates a way of living in one's life. Trauma is something that disrupts a way of living in one's life. Trauma is an interruption. Trauma is a disruption. Trauma is something that comes along and breaks open the way that my life has been going until now. Human beings are habituated creatures, meaning to say that we need to develop habits and we need to slowly but surely, like young children, learn how to trust the ground upon which we walk. The reason that we trust that things will work and continue to work the way that they've always worked is because they've worked that way. I turned my key in the ignition five days ago and the car started. I turned my key in the ignition the next day and the next day and the next day. And eventually my assumption based on my experience and the results of those experiences lead me to believe and to live with the assumption that by turning the key in the ignition, the car is going to start. Now, this development of habits of thinking, of assumptions about how life is going to go, 
is the most fundamental thing that a human being needs. Someone who doesn't have stability, someone who doesn't have a framework of functionality where I know how things are going to operate in my life in whatever area, is a person who's struggling to find the ground necessary to stand upon. Life is chaotic when it's simply one thing after the next without any connection. The development of functioning is where I come to assume that certain things in my life are going to happen. I eat the food prepared by other people and I don't get sick. I eat the food prepared by other people and I don't get sick. After a while, I come to trust that eating food prepared by other people is not necessarily going to make me sick. So I develop a basic assumption, basic truths about the world, about myself, and about other people. Now, this begins very early on in childhood. Very early on in childhood, without going into the developmental details and the necessity of care and the possibility of fixing that can take place at any stage of development, what must be understood that at each stage of the individual's life, from the moment of birth and onwards, we are undergoing a process of trying to develop order out of what feels to be a chaotic experience. The development of the self is not unified. We are born with a sense of not knowing what's what, and we search for things that are permanent in our lives. We search for the things that continue to show themselves. So hopefully and ideally, a person's parent or caretaker will have the ability to provide that stability of, I am here. I am here even though I might not be here at every moment, I am here. And as a child develops, they move from that stage of needing the parent to always be there at every moment, which is the omnipotence of being a child, where the child feels that I think and therefore I get what I want, I cry and therefore I get what I want, where the parent has to create this illusion that yes, the child is almost like God, where it gets whatever it wants. And then slowly but surely, healthy development is a parent who can then separate themselves and the child is able to cry now. And the child is able to realize that it doesn't get what it wants immediately and that there's a question called waiting in this world. And then the parent comes back and provides what is necessary and the child develops a good enough perspective of this world. They develop healthy perceptions of what can be expected. And slowly but surely we do this throughout childhood. A person learns what the natural results of certain behaviors are. And when those natural results of certain behaviors fit within the framework of how I've been taught or how I feel naturally life is meant to be lived, I inculcate those into my perception of the world. This is how the world works. This is how it works. And when something fits into that category of my mind, this is how the world works. I'm no longer questioning it. Without knowing how the world works, I'm questioning everything. But once I eat food that my mother prepared and I enjoy it, and I eat food that my mother prepared and I enjoy it, my mind is no longer going to be sitting there before my mother gives me food, wondering, am I going to enjoy this food or not? I live with a silent assumption that is far more powerful than any intellectual de decision to feel that my mom's food is going to be good. I know the food is going to be good because that's what's happened. That is how habits develop. I do something, there's a result, and I come to assume that doing that certain thing is going to bring about a certain result. That is the shigeret of life. That is how a person develops a flow of life, the natural assumptions of what this world will provide, what other people will provide, and what I am capable of doing. When a person begins to get into a flow of knowing how things are going to go, they stop questioning so much. They stop questioning so much exactly what's going to happen when I do this thing, what's going to happen when I do that thing. And a person begins to live unconsciously with the assumption that this is how things work. These are the preconceived notions that I have about the world. And this is a fundamental piece of development because the human being 
is naturally terrified of the unknown. Unknowns, things that are not within the control of my thought, I don't know how things are going to turn out, that leaves me feeling overwhelmed. That leaves me feeling anxious. That leaves me feeling like I'm not sure what's going to happen in the future. And because human beings struggle so much with what's going to happen in the future, and in the face of struggling with what's going to happen in the future, we try and worry about it and we try and place controls on the future, always coming to terms and realizing that we can't, the comfort that a human being will have in this world is where we find the places of knowns in our life. There are certain things that we know that we don't have to question. I know where my bed is. I know where the silverware is. I know where the car is parked. I know how long it will take me to get to work. I know how that friend feels about me, etc. We develop knowns in our lives. A trauma, any event of trauma, the definition of trauma, without getting into the intense specifics of a trauma, is when what I have come to expect, the lifestyle, the worldview, the things that I assume the world is going to give me, that other people are going to give me, or that I am capable of giving myself, when those expectations shift and something different happens, or what I assumed was always true turns out not to be true, that's the traumatic moment. The traumatic moment is when I have come to assume the certain way about the world and suddenly, suddenly out of nowhere, there's a disruption to that. The best analogy, the best metaphor for this is that a person as a child is developing the comfort of walking. Walking demands that there be sturdy ground beneath my feet. The notion of sturdy ground beneath my feet is that as a child, I don't know if there's going to be ground beneath my feet. I don't know that there's going to be some element of stability in the world. And therefore, I slowly but surely learn to walk and I come to trust that there's ground beneath my feet. And after a while of coming to trust that there's ground beneath my feet, that the world will operate in a certain way, that people operate in a certain way, that the things I've come to know about reality are true, that the things I've come to know about others or myself are true, I stop looking down at the ground so much. I stop wondering if the ground is going to be there when I place my feet there again, because that is the koach of habit. That is the koach of naturally developing into the framework of what we expect and what we know about reality. And we do this unconsciously or consciously. We don't pay attention to the fact that when we flip a light switch, the light goes on, and when we flip it off, it goes off. We don't pay attention to the fact that when I open up an, a refrigerator, I am able to take food out, and then I could close it and put it back in. We take these things as given, as granted, and they become the ground that we stand upon. Trauma is what happens when suddenly, as I am about to take that next step, somehow, some way, I look down at the ground, and I realize, oh my goodness, there's no ground here. The ground that was underneath my feet a moment ago, and it was there every moment before that, which led me to assume that the ground would always be there. Suddenly there is a crack in the ground. Suddenly something opens up. And if I were to place my foot onto the expected ground, which is what I know about life, then I would fall and I wouldn't be able to find ground to stand upon. That is the traumatic moment. It is the sudden appearance of something that causes me to question everything I have come to assume about life and everything that allows me to feel safe in this world. And now I'm forced to grapple with the new reality that there is now an opening there. Now working through trauma in a healthy way is going to be acknowledging the gap there, coming to terms with the gap there, and being able to find ways to build bridges across that gap with the help of others, with the help of engagement, etc. But post-traumatic effects begin when a person is simply unable to walk.
when a person now says, oh my God, the ground opened up beneath my feet, suddenly everything I've come to trust is not clear anymore, so why should I trust again? And one whose ability to trust in the development of known things in this world, comfortable things where I don't have to question, that's a person who lives perpetually in a state of being post-traumatized. And so trauma is any event, whether it be emotional, experiential, physical, that comes and disrupts what I have previously come to assume as the way that world is going to work, as the way that life goes, and suddenly reveals to me in a very clear way that what I've expected about life is not true simply because it's happened, and that things could have always been otherwise, and that things can change in an instant. It is the suddenness of trauma that makes trauma trauma. If a person has come to expect the difficulty, if a person has come to expect the fact that there's a certain pain in this world, then when that pain comes again, it's not traumatic, not because the pain isn't painful or because the pain is any less significant, but because it's expected and there's room for it now. And when there's room for something and something is expected, it does not bring about that very difficult element of trauma. It's specifically when I assume something to be one way and suddenly something comes along and shatters that, that's the traumatic moment. That's what disrupts it. One of the things that trauma really puts a person into, and again, we're not talking about the specifics of trauma. Once we understand what's happening at the heart of trauma, which is a sudden disruption of what I've come to expect and the appearance of something unexpected, very often in a difficult and painful way, once I come to understand the general framework of trauma, then it can be applied to each and every experience that a person is experiencing. Then it can be applied to the actual traumas of a person's life. Because when a person pays attention to this nature of trauma, the fact that any time what I've expected comes along and is suddenly shown to have not been real, and I'm questioning now the trust that I've placed in everything beforehand, those moments in our lives are the lowercase t traumatic moments. Those moments where we're forced to reconsider the fact that I thought I knew everything about how life goes because that's how life has gone until now. But ultimately, I've come to realize that I don't know. I don't know. That is the sudden sharp attack of trauma is the recognition that I don't know. Everything that I've come to assume until now has been just revealed in one degree or another to have not been as true as I assumed it to be. And that's where the ground beneath our feet begins to stutter. That's where the ground beneath our feet begins to tremble because now we don't know where we could place our feet. We've lived with this comfortable sense of, I know what's going to be. And then trauma comes along and says, guess what? You really don't. And so to make it more practical, to bring it down one schlav so that we can see how this can begin to be something that we can function with on a regular basis. Let's say a person, let's say a person, I'm going to make it the most minimal, the most minimal type of example so that anybody can extrapolate it and, and, and place it into their lives. So let's say I leave to work at 8 a.m. every morning and I get to work at 8.45 a.m. every morning. And that is what I center my, my morning around. Davening, preparation, all of the prerequisites of my day, they take place within the framework of that expected time. Now, I once upon a time chose that time that I was going to go to work without knowing whether it would work out. And the evidence testing of reality and the trial and error have led me to believe that this is the time that I need to get to work. Now, driving to work at that time throughout my life, I'll come to develop a sense that this is when I get to work. And arriving at work at 8.30 or 8.40 is going to be exactly what I need because that's the structure of my day. I get into such a routine and I develop a routine of what's expected 
And I stop wondering whether it's going to happen and I come to assume that it's going to happen. The assumptions that we have about how life is going to work are what give us the ability to walk in our day-to-day -day lives without questioning everything. If I didn't assume that turning the key in the ignition was going to start the car, then I would sit in front of the car with a thousand, two thousand questions about what's going to happen when I turn the key in the ignition. And in the end of the day, it would be too late for me to go where I even need to go. The ability to develop habituated forms of thinking, the ability to develop expectations and knowns about the world is what enables us to function. But it also leads us into a dangerous territory where we come to think that just because things have always been a certain way is how they're always going to be. And we get led into this natural, all too human desire to know everything. And we assume that the laws of our experience are the laws. And then suddenly there's traffic. Suddenly there's a sudden traffic jam that I wasn't informed about. In that moment, what I encounter is the recognition that, oh my goodness, everything that I've come to expect about getting to work in the morning, those things that I've taken for granted, those things that I've assumed are necessary for me to be able to function, in truth, they were happening all along, not because that's how it has to be, because that's how it was. That's how it turned out to be. That's how HaKadosh Baruch Hu enabled it to be. But I now come in contact with the very real fact that things can be different. Why? Because they are different. And in that sudden change, a person is disrupted. A person's functional order is disrupted. And at that point, the person begins to question everything. That's the birthplace of anxiety. And so what trauma is, is the sudden appearance of the unexpected, which forces me to reorient myself to the fact that what has happened in the past, all of the things that I've come to expect, maybe they're not so absolute. And if this is trauma, if this is the traumatic, traumatic experience, the sudden appearance of the fact that what you assume to be real is not necessarily real, what you assume to be absolutely certain is not certain, and it leaves you struggling to figure out how to continue in life when everything has changed, then we're capable of realizing that this very same function that's happening at the heart of every trauma, which is the sudden recognition of what I assume to be true is turned out not to be true, then we can also look at the possibility of the trauma of redemption in the same lens. That we also assume certain things about ourselves, about the world, about reality, about the way that we function with Hashem, and we live in those assumptions. We assume our spiritual positions. We assume our psychological positions. But just as the negative trauma is a sudden appearance of something unexpected that forces me to reconsider everything that I've expected beforehand, the same can be true in the lens of Geula, in the lens of redemption, what Mashiach is, what the arrival of Mashiach is in a person's mind, the comfort that Menachem Shivnachi offers a person, that Mashiach is oriented towards the secret of Nechama, is that I don't feel that I can be okay. I don't feel that anything can be okay. I don't feel that this circumstance in my life, this relationship, this marriage, this child, this job, this shul experience, nothing can be okay in this circumstance. I've come to expect that things can't be okay. My expectation is to walk around with a certain level of discomfort, a chip on my shoulder, the baggage that I carry. Ah, it's not my baggage, it's my parents' baggage and my grandparents' baggage and their parents' and their parents'. But we carry people's baggage without ever questioning it. And we assume that this is how life is supposed to be, walking around with the anxiety and the fear and the difficulty and the silent frustration. Each person goes through it. Whether a person has experienced a capital T trauma in their home or a lowercase t trauma in their home, there's not a home in 
the re reality of existence. There's not a Jewish home in reality that doesn't have its own mulchamus, that doesn't have its own struggle, that doesn't have its own difficulty or encounter with intensity in this world. But we carry it without ever trying to change it because we expect this is how things have always been. But if trauma is the sudden disruption of the way things have always been in a negative sense, then why can't we allow ourselves to be open to the possibility of a positive change, of something sudden appearing that has the possibility to transform everything? It's an expectation that Sapili Yeshua, the desire, anticipation towards redemption in any given moment is also quote-unquote traumatic. Because what it also does is it reveals to us that everything we thought we knew about ourselves and the world around us was also not so absolutely true. I'm not as limited as I thought I was. I'm not as stuck as I thought I was. The world is not as scary as I thought it was. And with the incoming new information that allows me to be a little bit more comfortable in the world, that's the trauma of redemption. It's a sudden disruption in the negative ways that I've been thinking, in the terrifying ways that I've been thinking, and it's the possibility of thinking in a new way, in a new positive way. And so in both circumstances, as we're moving away from negative trauma, where we're coming to terms with the fact that once I realize that I'm not in, con I'm not in control of reality, what happens in trauma is that there's a sudden revelation that what I thought was absolutely certain is not certain. What I thought my relationship would be like is not how the relationship is going to go. What I thought my parenting style would be like is not how it's going. If I refuse to bend to the changes of reality, then I will stay stuck in the trauma. If I refuse to realize that, wow, everything I thought was absolutely certain has the possibility of changing, and now I have to adapt the new changes, if I'm not able to do that, then I'll stay stuck in expecting what I always expected without willing to admit to the fact that that's not real. And that's where a person remains stuck in desiring something and not getting it, which is the re-traumatization over and over. As opposed to realizing that, okay, I thought I knew what was going on. I thought I ultimately knew how things were going to go. I thought I knew how this relationship was going to go. I come to realize that it's not that way. I come to realize that that's not how Hashem wants the world to be in this moment for me. And I learn to adapt. I learn to make room for the changes. Adaptability, the willingness and the recognition that all of those things that I've assumed to be so true about myself, about the world, those things that I've convinced myself I need in order to function. When reality, when Hashem shows me that that's not the case, bending like a reed and learning to adapt to the new circumstances is the secret of moving through the trauma, working through it and coming out on the other side of coming to realize, yes, I thought I knew and I do not know. I do not know. There's certain things that I can continue to know. There's certain things that I'll continue to trust. But every moment of trauma, and again, I'm being very delicate here. We're not talking about any specifics. We're talking about a framework which can be applied on any level of trauma, any level of trauma. And each circumstance will demand, meaning a person in an active form of trauma, the goal is not to utilize these thought constructs in order to alleviate the trauma. The goal is to stabilize, deal with the actual experience, utilize every tool in one's effort and every toolbox available. And thankfully, the Jewish people have many to deal with that trauma. But here I'm talking about the, the way of orienting our mind. That's what Panimia Satora does. It gives us the ability to reframe the sugya. 
in a new way. Doesn't mean the details change, but I'm reframing the entire existence and framework in which the details are taking place. And the processing of trauma is coming to terms with the fact that I thought I knew and I don't know. And that's okay. I thought I knew exactly how the world works and I understand why I needed that. That the human being is a very delicate, vulnerable thing and the world is a terrifying place. And the combination of those two things very naturally gives birth to the undying craving for absolute knowledge about how things are going to go on a moment-to-moment, day-to-day basis. Because without that, the overwhelming possibilities and chaos of what reality is is far too overwhelming. So we develop attitudes of this is what my life is. This is how it's going to go. These are my lanes. And it's all too natural for a person to begin to believe that those are absolute, to believe that my knowledge, my power, my control over how my life is going to go are absolute. Trauma is when that gets disrupted, when it fundamentally becomes clear in my mind that I am not in control. That can be given over to a person in a moment of a traffic jam or God forbid in any other framework of something surprising and unexpected that arises. But the question of trauma is not so much, oh my gosh, I realize now that I'm not in control, that I'm not in charge, but how do I move forward now? Will I come to trust that I can continue to walk in this world without knowing? Or will I say that without knowledge, I can't continue to exist? Idolatry was this. Idolatry was the need to have absolute certainty and knowledge about all things, to know exactly how the day was going to go as long as I did A, B, or C. It was a terror at the face of the unexpected, and it was a demand to say, I know exactly what's going to be. Avram Avinu, who theoretically was the first person to acknowledge trauma, was the first person to say, no, I'm going to break these idols, because what it means to be a Jew in this world is to live with that knowledge that I don't know. I thought I knew, and then I come to realize that I didn't know. And the question is, how do I learn to now live my life with that secret of not knowing? That is the healing from trauma. The healing of trauma is coming to realize that, you know what? It was fundamentally unexpected. This event, this experience, this feeling was fundamentally unexpected, and it doesn't fit within the framework of my experience. That's what's happening in any traumatic episode where a person is reacting. It's almost like a shock response. The vessels are incapable of receiving the level of new information because it has not been experienced before. It doesn't fit within my expectations of reality. And that's where the light, the insight, the thing that's happening and the vessel, my capacity to manage or make room for that, it doesn't work out because it hasn't been developed. It's too much of something. And so the body shuts down and the mind goes into a state of just functioning and floating, not fully experiencing the trauma, which is why traumatic memories are so fundamental, which we'll get to as well. All of these different elements, all of these symptoms that come about are ultimately rooted in the singular place of I have been disrupted from that center of knowledge and power that I have learned to live my life with. And now I am forced to come to terms with the fact that I don't know. And the antidote to this is going to be the willingness to live with Amuna, the willingness to, to live even though I don't know, to continue even though I don't know. And in that way, a person is able to alleviate so much of the frustration that comes about from trauma, which is that I need things to return back to normal. I need things to return back to the known in order for me to be able to function. I need to know exactly when I'm going to get to work. I need to know exactly how that person is going to be. I need to know exactly when this thing is going to end. 
And the openness and the post-traumatic growth is the realization that you conceal yourself, you're a hidden God, I don't know anything. I don't know anything and all I have to do is try on a daily basis to develop the healthy habits of serving you in the best way possible and functioning in my life one moment to the next without too much expectation of what's to come without any need for power or knowledge about what's going to be, but rather an openness and a faith that gives me the ability to float through life without needing absolute control, which will always lead to more frustration and craving. And so in that sense, the framing of trauma can be applied both to the negative experience, but also utilized in the positive sense, which we'll spend more time speaking about after. I'm sure I know that there's some questions also and some, some reflection points. Roosevelt, that was like so deep. I got to like listen to it like three times. <laughs> okay, let's take a little break. We're going to do a poll and then we're going to jump into the questions. Again, anybody who has a question, you have Rabbi Rosenfeld over here and everything is on the table. You can ask him anything. There's a lot of questions coming in different different angles. I see from trauma, but everything, whatever's on your mind, you can ask. Let's get some clarity in it. Um, okay, let's start off first with the polls and let's see what the Oilam has to answer. Okay, here we go. It's a three question poll. Let's start off. First question, what is your belief regarding whether most people in our generation have been traumatized? Number A, I totally agree with that statement, that most people in generation have been traumatized. B, some people have, but not everyone. Or C, the word trauma is being overused in our generation. Number one. Number two, how do you understand the meaning of the word trauma? Someone who has a difficulty in their life, is that trauma? Something or an event that happened to a person that is holding them back from productive life? Or C, trauma is a lasting emotional impact from distressing events. How would you best define it, even though some of them sound familiar? Number three, what steps can you take to heal from trauma that you have experienced? Four options. What, what, which one would you pick? A, seek professional therapy or counseling to address the trauma. B, engage in self-care practices such as mindfulness, exercise, and healthy lifestyle choices. C, turn to davening and spiritual guidance, seeking comfort and strength from the higher power. Or D, considering engaging in acts of kindness, chesed within the community. So those are the three questions. Read them, vote. And um, we'll, we'll chazad them or Joey. Then we'll jump into questions. Okay, another five seconds. Okay, here we go. We're going to share with everybody the answers, whatever the answer, and we'll go through them. Okay, so the first question was, um, what is your belief regarding whether or not people in our generation have been traumatized? Pretty split, Reverend Roosevelt. 32% of people feel that I totally agree with that statement, that most people in our generation have been traumatized. 43% of people say some people have, but not everyone. And 25% of people feel the word trauma is being used in our generation, is being overused in our generation. Joey, what's your comment on that? I, I think that ultimately the literature on trauma had undergone a real shift about, you know, 20 years ago or so. 
where where trauma was going to be seen now trauma used to be a capital t trauma which meant a specific event and if we're talking about a specific event so then i i think that some people have been but not everybody and that the word trauma is being overused in our generation because some people have experienced something that has placed their lives or the lives of someone they love in imminent danger which used to be the diagnostics of trauma and that's certainly not something that everybody has experienced but even within that category, there's always been room to say that since 9-11, especially Corona, and especially what's happening now, it's very difficult to claim that anybody who's consciously aware of what's taking place in their general surroundings doesn't fit into the category of, of a capital T trauma. That's, you know, we're a post-traumatic generation to one degree or another. But again, if the trauma becomes the expected norm, so then it reverts to not being trauma anymore. It just reverts back to being a very difficult terrain of, of functioning. So again, so in the context of capital T, I would agree with the uh, with the second two options. In the context of the lowercase t trauma, which is the recognition that anytime I, my expectations in this world are frustrated and I'm forced to pay attention to the fact that, wow, Hashem, what I want is not necessarily what I'm going to get. So then from that general perspective, the more general background of trauma, I feel that still, I think that everybody in our generation and ever can can say to be human is to be trauma. To be born is to is to have experienced the the entry into a place where I'm no longer experiencing the the full Torah that I learned in the womb. I'm no longer being fed without any effort. I'm 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 entering into a place of a shift. The neshama is being torn down from Shemayim. Zohar Kadr says that the scream that comes out from the neshama at the moment of birth is one of those screams that never stops reverberating through the fabric of reality. Which means to say, as the tzaddikim point out, that life is a difficult thing, and that's to be taken as an assumed position in Yiddishkeit. Okay. The second question, how do you understand the, the meaning of the word trauma? So um, only 2% of people said someone who has the difficulty in their life, that means trauma. 33% of people said something something or an event that happened to a person that's holding them back from productive life. And 66% of people, most people believe trauma is the lasting emotional impact from distressing events. Um, got it right? I mean, I would, I would agree with that. I, I think that all three fit into the general rubric of trauma. Again, trauma is one of those things that's undefinable. It's definable to each person in accordance with their own way of living life. So, but yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And then, Although I shift, what we're going to do in this year is shift. The distress doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a distressing event. It has to be something sudden that disrupts the expectations of what my life has been. So basically, I mean, when you're saying that, it, it basically would go back to someone who's having a difficulty in their life, even though they actually nothing actually happened. That would also be traumatic. So, for example, somebody just having a hard time with Parnassa, nothing actually happened. That's yes. you would you would define that as traumatic. It's it's a great question. Meaning, a cognitive distortion, a, a negative way of thinking, is not necessarily traumatic. But the the thing that leads to the negative way of thinking. Is traumatic, so and when, I might when, not be able... when the little kid doesn't get what he wants, or he doesn't get his lollipop, right? Mm -hmm. And he says, "I'm so traumatized today because the kid in the class uh, took my snack." Technically, what you're saying is that's that is correct. 
Yes, with the prerequisite, with the prerequisite understanding that that's not necessarily something that now needs to be responded to in giving the child a lollipop, right? It, it fits within the framework of any educational model of development that a person wants a, a child to enter into this world with, and entering into the world with the expectation that I'll always get my lollipop, and if I don't get my lollipop, I'm traumatized, might not be the healthiest way. But in that child's mind, trauma, like we said, is a relative subjective position. So yes, if the child feels that they needed their lollipop in order to function, and it's important because you see this with the addict or the addicted spirit in all categories, it's the same thing, that it is traumatic. If a person feels that they need something in order to function, in spite of the fact that all evidence externally supports to say, what are you talking about? That doesn't take away one iota of that person's feeling that they need this in order to function. And for that individual not having the thing that they need is considered traumatic. We see this in Hilchus Tzedakah, surprisingly. That somebody who goes from, from wealth to rags very quickly, the tachlis of Tzedakah is to support them in a way that will adhere to their original perspective of wealth, which seems to be a profoundly unfair perpetuation of an imbalance in financial status. But ultimately, we come to see that what this person came to expect and the normatives of this person's life is what they need in order to kind of function. And that fits into the framework of basic support of the individual's identity. Let's go to the last question. What steps can you take to heal from trauma you've experienced? Personal question. So most people here tonight, 58% of the people um, feel that seek professional therapy or counseling to address and process the trauma. Um, only 17% of people feel engaging in self-practices such as self-practice, self-care practices such as mindfulness, exercise, and healthy lifestyle choices. 23% of people feel turning to davening, spiritual guidance, seeking comfort and strength from the higher power. And um considering engaging in acts of chesed within the community is only 2%. Mm -hmm. So it seems like most people feel the only way to really self-help themselves and getting out of trauma is with therapy or counseling. What's your take on that? I think that I think that it's an amazing question because all three of those have to be interlaid on top of each other. In any therapeutic approach, in any therapeutic approach, we want to follow kind of the Swiss cheese model, which is that there is no model that works all the time. Every model has holes in it. And so the best developmental steps taken towards health are interlaying different pieces of cheese where the holes of one don't align with the holes of another one, where the deficiencies of one model of healing are going to be fulfilled by the strengths of another model of healing, and deficiencies of that model of healing will be filled with the strengths of the other model of healing. And the more we lay, the more hope that we're going to have. The Sadiqim said we have to take everything and throw gallons and gallons of healing on ourselves in the hope that maybe one drop is going to enter into our mouths. I, I think that, I, and I'm also, every aspect that we discussed over there was, you know, you could say body, heart, and mind, right? The body is going to be self-care. The, the heart is going to be the therapeutic engagement, right? And the mind is going to be the tefillah. It, I think it's a good sign that a person doesn't want to run into doing chasadim and, and help for another person in the moment of their trauma, because when a person feels, you know, decentered from their life and the center can't hold anymore and everything is falling apart, 
the all too natural need to go back into a position of doing something for another person and being needed can very often be the road that leads towards codependency and to this sense that I am worthy as long as I am providing something for another person. And so while chesed and altruism is always the, the healthiest thing to do in a position of where a person is no longer feeling like the person that they once were, it is so important for a person first and foremost to focus on building themselves up and only then offering themselves to, to do for others. Because you're right, doing for the klal is one of the greatest ways that it, to, to alleviate the trauma of the self, not because of how great chesed is, but because anything that takes me away from my natural self-obsession and addiction to my own self-reflection is going to be therapeutic and redemptive in my life. And so doing something for another person, when the Piazetz Nerebbe told the Holy Hunchback that the best azach in the Welt is to do another person a favor, it's not that other people need that favor done. It's the it's not the best thing for the person I'm doing a favor for. It's the best thing in the world for me. There's nothing more powerful for me than doing something for another person. But if I'm not a person yet, doing something for another person runs the risk of keeping me stuck in never becoming a person. So I oh, think that's back on that positive. point. That, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you see this in the in the therapy trauma world. Is that a lot of people that whether they had addiction problems in the past and they get into the recovery zone or a therapist that went through something. They, they get a tremendous seepuk from helping people in that same situation. Yes. It's mu as much as they want to help the people, it's much more for themselves. There's also, it is for themselves. Everything a person does is, is for themselves, other than other than tzaddikim. Meaning, and again, it's not that we're doing things selfishly. We're always trying to navigate the boundaries of self-interest with self-development and and we will always have self-interest that's what it means to be a human being but the goal is to try and move beyond that and do in the best way because i'm reading the writings of of simple sissel of kelm and learning about ava atzmit the love of self and on the one hand it is the the worst mida available and it is the thing that brings me into gaiva kina and at the same point it's also the gateway towards spiritual development so the truth of the matter is that I always have to be present for myself and relate to myself. It's a question of how am I relating to myself? But I, I think you're absolutely correct. And a person, there, there are ways of helping in smaller steps along the way, but the goal is, is to give the person themselves, it gives sipuk to the neshama to, to give to another person. Yeah. Okay, Joey, a lot of people want to get into it. Let's go to sure, live. Okay. So again, anybody who wants to ask live, please text me and let's get into it. Okay, you're on. Okay, can you hear me? Yep. Okay. So I want to thank you very much, uh, Rav Rosenfeld, for your uh, presentation. Um, I, well, I find that uh, your definition of trauma uh, really, really fit, fits um, what, what you would call acute trauma, but does not fit so well uh, what is... Uh, called complex trauma, mm -hmm. where uh, trauma is not defined as a disruption, a sudden dis disruption of what you're expecting, but trauma is caused by the con continuous disruption mm -hmm. of what the, what uh, an infant or a toddler or, or a person should be getting in their lives from their caregivers. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I, I, I'm curious how you would maybe uh, define uh, trauma uh, yeah, it's a complex trauma. Yeah, I, I think that I think that it's an an incredible point, an incredible point. But First, for Joey, let's let's for everybody listening, let's explain the basic what sure. complex trauma sure. means. 
Sure. I don't know if so everybody understands what complex trauma is. I'm not sure that I have a full grasp. I'll give you my definition of what I understand. Complex trauma is basically when you have a trauma, and it could be a small trauma, but it's constantly happening over and over again. Let's say uh, uh, your mother screams at you, but she always screams at you over and over. Something that's repetitive in the last 30 years of your life, or it could be, you know, it's just the same trauma over and over that keeps on building. That's why I understand complex trauma. Mm-hmm. Right. And and that kind of and that removes to one level or another the nature of the sudden appearance of trauma. Right. It's, but, a I, it's continuous. Mm-hmm. That's the definition yeah. of complex trauma. That it's a continuous occurrence. And then uh, the healing really is, I'd say, this person in adulthood has uh, <clears throat> a partnership, a partner relation with somebody who is securely attached. So uh, it's going to be very disruptive for this person, uh, the interaction with somebody who is secure, because it's not what this person is expecting from the world. But that's the, the path towards healing, is to uh, be able to to live with secure attachment. Yes. I, I think that in, in my in the general framework of, of what we're discussing, I think that the 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 perpetuation of the trauma moment to moment to moment to moment. And those moments develop into the hours which inform the days and the repetition, the repetition element at the heart of trauma which is ultimately at the core of trauma studies where it all begins. It's the tendency to engage in the same pattern of behavior or to be exposed to the same pattern of behavior over and over and over again without feeling that one can break free from it. When when viewed under the microscope to kind of break apart the phenomenon of the complex trauma, which is moments of traumatic experience that are being gathered together to appear as if they are taking place in a sequential pattern, that they're happening over and over and over and over and over again. And in the experience of the trauma itself, the individual who is in the trauma, it's very similar to an idea in Eretz Yisrael. Someone asked me what it's like in Eretz Yisrael recently. And, and the, the, the best phrase that I've been able to use is like what we know about frogs, that they're not aware that they're being boiled in water until they're actually being boiled in water. And that's kind of the feeling that a person is unaware of the fact that they're boiling and that there's pain until suddenly at 11 a.m. you're wondering why is everything so heavy and ah because every moment previous to this has been a a repetitive moment of a reintroduction into the same traumas trauma is always the same framework it is a disruption from the expected but i i think that the nature over here of complex trauma is it shows the elasticity of the mind that wants to retreat return back to its assumed position of what i expect and then it's consistently being surprised again and again and again so my only point over here i don't have an answer in terms of how it would be dealt with differently but i think that complex trauma still can be viewed from a theoretical perspective as as the the rapid reoccurrence of acute traumas in in rapid sequence if that makes sense. Yeah. It's not an answer and it just demands, it just, it demands, it, and it also recognizes the fact that a person who's been in the process of the complex traumatic kind of dynamic, it's going to be far more difficult for that individual to conceive of another way of living their lives, of another way of orienting themselves towards other, of another way of orienting themselves towards attachment, like you pointed out. And so the work out of that is going to be 
more, not difficult, the work of trauma is always difficult work, but it will demand more longevity because the natural kind of neuroplasticity has become almost, almost misinformed by experience. It's not unlike addiction that in, in a very simple way, the body is traumatized when it's introduced to a substance for the first time, right? Which is why the body is pushing back against it. But after a while of repetitive usage and development of tolerance and dependency, the body comes to expect this altered state of consciousness or this dopamine release as the way that I have to function on a regular basis. So the aberration to the norm has become the norm. And then recovery or any attempt at being sober is suddenly taking away what one has convinced the body that it now needs in order to survive. And it's breaking free from that newly formed way of living. Okay, thank you. Sure. Okay, Joey, let's go to the next live question you're on. Thank you for taking my question. Um, I had a question regarding um, bringing up traumas that you forgot. Um, I'm working in therapy now for over, let's say almost two years, and we're working on different attachment issues and recently like a certain image came to my mind and my therapist is working on like understanding it and different interesting things are coming along with it which I feel very uncomfortable with maybe for many reasons um and I'm just wondering like how how what's the right way to go about this how am I supposed to know if it's real the image or if it's fake and which direction to take I don't know if I was clear. No, you were very clear, Goldie. And uh, you were very clear. And um, I I don't have I don't have an answer. First off, the, the first thing to do is is to acknowledge what a person is going through in any process of therapy and any encounter with any traumatic process, which is very painful work. It's very painful work and it's very heavy work and it demands a real tethering of the self to a place of trust and comfort and, and the ability to kind of move forward. But in, in terms of giving a practical insight as to, as to what to trust and how to orient oneself to the therapeutic process that they're going through, um, it, the only answer I can really provide in this context is, is it depends on, on how you feel about the therapist. If there's a trusting relationship with the therapist and the therapist has shown themselves to be somebody who can be trustworthy and has led you towards a place of really acknowledging what the issues have been and working towards developing pathways of healing from those issues, then it is safe to assume that as long as it fits within the narrative of my experience and that I am the one who continues to be in control of the narrative, which is the goal of any therapeutic encounter, any therapist who takes the narrative away from the person in therapy is, is not a good therapist. They're, they're, they're doing the wrong thing there. That's never been the case. And so, so all I can say to this, because it, it out of respect of the process you're going through, I don't want to give a, a cookie cutter answer uh, in terms of any measure of what can be said about the scenario you're in, other than to trust your trust yourself and bring up any doubts or any concerns that you have with the therapist. We must make our therapist work for us. That's the process of payment. In spite of the fact that the therapist operates from a position of power in the dynamic, that is what allows therapy to kind of work even though client-centered care is ultimately, you know, the operant model. But as therapeutic modalities, especially in the realm of trauma care, become more medicalized, 
which is a positive thing, right? Because as insurance companies begin to acknowledge these mental health issues as legitimate physical experiences, as legitimate processes, so too does the personalized subjective experience of inner experience undergo a change. And now it has to be fit. Like, do you feel this, that, or the other thing? Can you put a checkbox here? And ultimately we can reduce, you know, the depth of human experience to an A.35F severe in the DSM-5, which is, which is really inappropriate to, to do when treating the depth of the human experience. At the same point, we need to kind of medicalize it. We need to kind of go through the process. But I think that we have to remember that we have to force our therapist to work for us. And if there is something that I am concerned by or I have doubts in it, then we want to bring that up with our therapist and, and see how they react to it and, and move forward from there. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, like, okay. Let's go to the next live question you're on. Okay. Thank you. Um, I have two questions for you. Firstly, um, based on the definition that you gave for trauma, which is, um, I don't know the exact wording, but basically an unexpected change in what we expect to be considered normal or what we expect to be considered the way things work. Why would it be that, for example, two kids or two adults have the same face, the same trauma or experience or, or unexpected experience, and they come out from it differently? I mean, you say two kids could grow up in the same home with parents that are let's say abusive or mistreating them, but one could come out unscathed while the other one would be really, really traumatized. Um, that's my first question. I mean, say why are certain human beings more vulnerable? Does it have to do with, with intense emotions? Does it have to do with um, intelligence? Like what makes one be more vulnerable to trauma than the other? And the second question is, um, in your introduction, you spoke a lot about accepting the fact that trauma is an unexpected change in what we expect. So just to be able to accept that, but what if we had trauma? We're already past the trauma. We healed from, like we're healing into the trauma. We're not having this trauma anymore currently, but looking back at the trauma, we are still reliving it. We can't go back to it because there's so much pain attached to it. And there's so much um, hurt feelings or whatever it is and looking even we're not there anymore and we know that that was a traumatic experience and we're not in it anymore there is so much pain attached to it still how can we yeah. heal from that very powerful questions and so so with regards to the first one this is you know the question that you're bringing out the, the the question that you're bringing out now is is an ancient one ultimately that rests at the core of any kind of therapeutic encounter which is the question of nature and nurture which is the question of how does one's inherent orientation towards the world whether it's based on their genetic makeup whether it's based on their experience throughout whatever it is and how I'm influenced by others as to how to relate to the world. What is the interrelationship between those two models of development and my reaction to the world? Is my reaction to the world always going to be based on simply what my genetic makeup is and the nature of who I am? Or is it going to be built upon the nurture or how I was raised to orient in life? Meaning, is it the, the basic inner system that I am born with? 
that is the the motivating factor behind my reactions to the world or is it the surrounding ways that i learn to live life from other people and through culture that is going to have a bigger impact then and, and really after all is said and done the answer is both it's never been nature or nurture it's been always both both play a role. In addition, there is a new element that is being brought up, and it's still within the realm of pseudoscience just to the degree that it can't necessarily be managed and studied with the same intense form of evidence-based kind of research, but it's called epigenetics. And epigenetics is a reorientation towards the entire framework of how we look at how our developmental stages lead to how we react to the world. It used to be assumed that genetic disposition was kind of like a, a material thing, that if mom or dad operated in X, Y, or Z, then child is going to operate in X, Y, or Z because the insides translate to the insides and mom or dad have these insides and the child is also going to operate with the same operating system on the inside. But what has been studied over and over and, and been coming out more and more is that ultimately that there's something called spooky action at a distance. And sometimes there's really no identifiable causal relationship between how I feel as a person and how I function in the world and any identifiable experience that I may have undergone, right? A person who feels that I simply feel like the world is not working for me in spite of the fact that I've been given everything and that my life seemingly appears to be a functional one. So where is that struggle coming from? Epigenetic implies that the child, the child and all of us are children ultimately, or the inner child element is, is reacting to things far more open-ended and subjective than actual experiences. We are reacting to how our parents felt around us. We are reacting to the attitudes and the frameworks in which the house operated. We are operating and responding to the emotional territories that have been opened up in our lives through the encounters with others. And so each person is going to undergo that developmental stage in a very different way. I may react to how mom or dad act in a fundamentally different way than my sibling. It could also be because I am developing different coping mechanisms. I might have an easier time shutting myself off from my emotions because they're too painful. And another child who has a much more intense emotional aptitude is going to have a more difficult time shutting those off because they're feeling them more intensely. When it comes to identifying personality traits, this type of personality, neshamos are different on every level. Some are more vulnerable, some are more sensitive, some are rooted in this place or that place. So each person is going to literally have their own framework of functioning, even if they were born at the same time, right? We see that even if they're twins, we, we recognize that each person right. is their own universe. And, and Rabbi right. Nassim of Nimerov said, Rabbi Nassim of Nimerov said that there's, the, I can explain Torah on everything, 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 except two things about where I stand in this world, like where I'm at and what relationship I actually have with Hashem and what the true status of where I'm at is, and another Yid. I could understand everything in the world, but to understand another person is already the deepest sugya, which means to say that the context of each and every person is singularly unique, and we would have to untie all of the threads and the fabric of that person's existence and all of the generations beforehand to understand exactly why one is reacting in the way that they're reacting. And in terms of the second question, which is, I've worked through trauma. And there is, there is a time where a person can say, I have worked through the trauma, but the recollection of the trauma 
and the returning to the trauma through memory. And memory is always visual, whether it's an image or it's an imagination, there's always a conjuring up of that encounter, like the language that you're using is. And the memory of it brings me back to a place where I'm destabilized again, where I'm not comfortable. Does that capture the question? Right. I mean, you say the trauma, I mean, the trauma wasn't worked through completely, but I mean, you say the trauma is not there anymore, right? Right. And, right. And, and we accepted that it was trauma and that it's not mm -hmm. on anymore. However, going back there, there are extremely raw feelings and, and, and the pain is so real that it could bring back right. panic and, and just like it's happening again. Right. And, and, so, and so what you're describing is really the nature of traumatic memory. What happens in memory, what happens, what happens in memory is that the mind operates, the mind operates like a camera. That when the mind is encountering existence, it takes a photo in its mind a mental image of what is happening with the emotions, with the feelings, with the experiences, and I file it in the file cabinet of my memory. Now, the brain typically operates like a digital camera, that memory is almost immediate, that one can even say that experience itself is memory, because I can never truly experience something in and of itself if I'm thinking about it. If I'm thinking about it, I'm always a moment behind it. And if I'm a moment behind it, I'm always in the act of memory or retrieving. This is why Yiddishkeit is so fundamentally about zichron the Maiseberatius. I'm beginning, I'm remembering the creation of the world, meaning I'm remembering the first moment of when things began, because I can never grab hold of that original moment. But suffice it to say that when the brain is functioning like a digital camera when i want to retrieve that image it's a pre it's a pre it's a developed picture completely so i retrieve that memory and i'm looking at that image and i remember ah this was the experience this is what i felt this is where i was this is what i was wearing etc cetera, etc cetera. that's what happens when the mind is operating where the content of experience fits within the framework of my digital camera but when the content of experience overwhelms the framing of the mind, which is trauma, which is shock, the mind goes into a state of not being able to function. I'm clicking on the digital camera, but it's not taking anything because I can't capture the frame. There's something overwhelming. There's something intense for it. So the mind can't function in a way of not mem without memory, or it can, but that's a, a farther level away from kind of functioning or a complete disassociation. But in moments where the digital camera is not working, we reach down for our handy dandy kind of regular camera, our Polaroid camera. And what's happening with a Polaroid camera is very different than a digital camera. When I look at a digital image, I see the full image. But when I'm looking at a Polaroid camera, the image is developing in real time. And every second that I'm looking at that image, I am beginning to see more and more of that picture in real time develop. And so when the mind is traumatized, when there's a trauma that takes place, the person is not there. The person is not present. The first essay of Freud's intervention about trauma was based on a, a case study where it said a boy was being hit. There was a disassociation. The individual in the moment of trauma is not present. They ascend a little bit upwards and they are able to objectively view what is taking place because they need to protect the self. Again, I'm speaking in, in broad, broad strokes and generalizations here as, right. as, as Freud did. So, so, so what happens is when I'm looking at a Polaroid camera to one degree or another, every time that I am looking back at that mental image, I am experiencing it again as if it were actually for the first time. Because each and every time I remember something that I didn't fully experience, I wasn't fully there, my mind kind of vacated 
every time I remember it, I am integrating more and more of that experience into myself and it feels as if I'm experiencing at the same time. And if it feels like I'm experiencing at the same time, then most certainly the emotions and the triggers attached to that original experience are going to be awoken by the memory. Does that make sense? So me to say you, what you're saying is basically that as the trauma was happening, it was like sort of I was out of it and it was happening. And mm -hmm. as I am looking every time I'm looking back at it, it's I'm I'm it's more and more me. It's more real. It re, like I'm more accepting that it really happened. And this was actually what I was going through. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a process of healing as long as a person has the framework necessary to experience it. And so being told to go back. Beautiful to yeah. It's the Gemara has an amazing story like this uh, in, in the ninth par in the sixth parak of Brachos. Um, it's a crazy story about the, the Chazal are walking through the forest and they find the Perus of Ginnasar and they have this almost hallucinatory experience from eating the fruits of Eretz Yisrael. And, and afterwards, they kind of come to a clearing and they're discussing the a bracha that a person is going to make. And and they didn't know. And one of them said, like, ask Rebbe Meir. And and all the Hebrew look at him, they're like, uh, Rebbe Meir's dead. And he's like, and, and he falls into mourning again. Meaning there, there's a reality where a person oh. can undergo a loss or a person can undergo an experience, process the experience, and then still not have fully processed the experience so that each time I'm becoming aware of it, I am mourning it. But again, the work of mourning is coming to terms with something and the process of acceptance. And so it's as if it's happening over and over and over and over again until it's fully integrated, at which point I don't have to really recall it so much. Makes sense. Okay, brilliant answer. Thank you. <laughs> a lot of people still want to ask questions so let's go to yeah the i'm good I'm, I'm good i enjoy us I, I enjoy answering questions so as long as we're we're good i'm good okay you're on hi so my childhood trauma is that my my brother died when i was four years old so what i want to try to um do better is like trust hashem more and like know that hashem loves me because it kind of doesn't feel like it yeah yeah I, 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 me too, first off, me too, meaning I'm trying to, I'm trying to trust that Hashem loves me, even though sometimes it, 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 it's not, it's okay that it doesn't feel like it. It's okay that it's a struggle to try and come to terms with these belief systems. If it was easy, then it would be easy. If it was easy, then it wouldn't be work. The work of Amuna, the work of Bitachon is coming to a place of refined imagination in my life that I am going to choose to view my life and my relationship with Hashem through the framework that Hashem loves me and through the framework that my life is an expression of Hashem's life for me. Ultimately, Hashem's expression to anything in reality is always the same. Hashem is fully revealing Himself in His infinitude at any moment. And at the very same moment, it is entirely concealed. And those are questions that Mashiach will come to answer. So we live stuck between the absolute revelation of Hashem and the absolute concealment sometimes of HaKadosh Baruch Hu in our lives, which leaves us in the territory of human Bechira, which is the most difficult thing that Hashem could have placed us in this world to engage with. But that's where we're at. We live with choice. Ultimately, Bitachon Emuna, those are choices that a person makes. How will I expand the framework of my relationship with God so that it can create the baseline of a healthy attachment where I feel confident and loved in my experience. It's not going to come from heaven. Maybe it will. Maybe it will, because those are nisim. 
but if it doesn't come from heaven, so then a person is the one who needs to open up their bitachon and say, I, if I'm living in this world with pain, I'm going to utilize the medicine available to me, and the medicine available to me is bitachon and emuna. So we say to Hashem, I'm going to make this work for me. I'm going to figure out a way to know that you love me because I can't live without that knowledge. And so it's it's manipulating our emuna and bitachon, allowing ourselves to utilize imagination. And what that means is that I can think something even though I don't feel it. I can think something even though I don't feel it. And even though I don't feel it doesn't mean that it's not true. And beginning to realize that just because I don't feel something doesn't mean that it's not true gives me the ability to then come to believe in certain things even though I don't feel them. And then by believing in them, I'll eventually come to feel them. <laughs> Thank you. And so it's like faking it until you make it because faking it is the same thing as making it. Mm. And even if you don't believe it. Especially. But, but you're struggling with your mind that's saying you're playing games. So you're fighting constantly with that thought. Yeah, Avada. So, I want to just, Menachem, can you, can you refine that point? Because I, I think that's a really important point. I've met many people, and uh, some people have more or less, but they're, they're constantly fighting with their own thought. They want to be mechazic themselves in Munibetachim. And then the thought says, you're just playing games, it's not true. And it goes on and yeah. on and on. Yeah. And they just give up. What I would say to a person like that is, you're right, you're playing games. It's called Sha'ashu'e Amuna. It's the playfulness of Amuna. The secret of Amuna is that Hashem gave us the ability to create our own Amuna. The Pasuk says in Mufurash, David HaMelech says, Derech Amuna Bacharti, I have chosen the path of faith. What do you mean you chose the path? Faith is something that comes to a person based on intellectual processes, and I've come to assume that this is the most true thing available to me, so I'm going to choose to believe it. I chose to believe? That implies that it's a choice of my own making. And if it's a choice of my own making, that means that my choosing to believe that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is with me in this moment is what brings HaKadosh Baruch Hu down into this moment with me. And there's absolutely nothing in the world. What's going to tell me my Amuna isn't real? What am I afraid of? Am I afraid of being punished for my amun and not being correct? A person could go and look at the Svarim of the Baal Shem Tov, of the Gra. Any, any, possible, any possible comfort that can come about through thinking about Hashem, we have to assume is true for us at this point. And we have to also be confident in ourselves. We have to also be confident in ourselves that we're not going to take this permission and go and destroy everything. Because whenever I talk about this, and I could talk about this Nakuda across the board, of the fact that Hashem gave us permission to create narratives of faith that are comforting to us, and that Hashem knows that this world is difficult, and Hashem wants us to find comfort in faith, and Hashem wants us to imagine ourselves as directly connected to Him, even though our bodies, our hearts, and our minds are telling us that we're not. And to fake it until we make it. And to do it loy lishma, even though we know we're not doing it for the right reason. And to do it even though we know we're not authentic. And to do it even though we know that, ah, last night I did this or the other thing, and in the next moment I'm going to do this. Hashem gives us permission. Hashem gives us permission to utilize the benefits of Amuna and Bitachon for a Yid to feel comfortable in this moment. That is the Tachlis, to be mamshech light down into ourselves, to be more comfortable. Ha'emanti ki adaber. I have emuna because I've spoken it out. But we're so afraid. Everybody is very afraid, myself included, that, that 
When given permission, we're going to run with it and destroy everything. When given permission, our first question is, but what happens when I ruin something with this gift you just gave me? That's the natural position. When a person is exposed to Hasidus or Panimiya Torah, it's okay, but now what happens when I stop doing the mitzvos? What happens when I believe so much in Hashem that I'm not going to try anymore? I saw this in recovery all the time. You talk to a client who's been literally living in, in abject suffering to maintain their heroin addiction for the last three years, and you introduce them to mindfulness. The question is, but what happens when I'm mindful for 17 hours a day? How am I going to take care of my bills? I said, brother, five minutes a day, five minutes a day. The mind is so untrusting of itself that we assume that we will mess up and we assume that we will take something and misuse it. But we can't. Everything is broken anyway. We can't break things more than they're broken already. We have the opportunity now to, to utilize the, the, the medicine of Emuna, the medicine of Emuna. And, and that means, Hashem, I am the one who is going to determine how present you are in my life right now. Not going to be the Rebbe who in fourth grade told me that you're only present when X, Y, or Z. I am going to be the one who decides when Hashem is in my mind or not. That's that's why they need someone to hold their hands. They're they're fighting their own vision, their own view, their own mindset. And what you're saying is amazing. And if they're listening to this, they could be they feel it now, but a minute later, like tomorrow, they're back in that cycle. Objectify, objectify. Fine. That's the importance of having a spiritual mentor, someone who trusts the words written in the book. And a spiritual mentor could be a safer. A safer can be a chavrusa. We're not making these things up. There's no idea, there's no comforting idea available to the human psyche that cannot be found in the Svarim HaKadoshim, that cannot be found in Chazal itself. And so simply because the Torah that we've been taught for so long fit within a particular narrative of human development and the way that we relate to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and ourselves doesn't mean that that's the only way. And in the unfolding revelation of Panimiya Satora, which across the board, this is not a Hasidish thing. This is the Vilna Gon even more than the Baal Shem Tov. They're both very much unified on everything, especially in this point, that as the generations move forward towards what will eventually, Be'ezra Sashem, become the redemption, we encounter a period of time that is known to be very difficult, where the basic functioning spiritual survival skills will demand more strength than what it meant to be a Baal Shem Tov. Rabbi Nachman said there'll come a time where to have an ounce of amuna is going to be a bigger chiddush than the Baal Shem Tov. And that's the generation we're in. That's where we're at. And so in this place, we need to reorient and re-educate because people assume that, ah, this is just applying all of that, you know, pop psychology to Torah. When in reality, the only value that pop psychology provides is the fact that it is giving language to ideas that have been expressed in our books for millennia. A person, it, it, it's just tachazi. It's come and see what the Svarim are telling us about what a Jew is, what the neshama actually is, where the neshama actually comes from, and where the neshama is actually going, and most importantly, where the neshama is actually at right now. And so I, I hear you, Rabbi Nacham, and, and but that's the, it's the overcoming of the kfira. A person has to be koifer in the kfira of themselves. Ulamashinim al-tiyitikva. Right? We say ulamashinim al-tiyitikva to those who, who d use their language to destroy the faithful. Right? Those who take away from faith. The Slanamar Tzadikim said, who am I davening to? Who am, who am I davening about now? Who am I asking Hashem to remove? And the Slanamar Tzadikim say yourself, 
you're the Malshin. Each and every one of us is a Malshin in ourselves that doubts the utilization of spirituality and emuna that can provide something beneficial. And whether it's built on the fact that, you know, I'm not meant to enjoy things in this world because my teacher read some Protestant informed book that says that Jews have to suffer because of the original sin, which is just not a real thing. Or because I was informed in a different way. We have the ability now to overcome the kfir of ourselves. The Rav Hutner said this is the avoid of our generation. But the biggest kfir and the last kfir that remains is the kfir in self. And Rabbi Nachman says very clearly that the biggest Rahmanas in the world, there's no Rahmanas bigger than a Jewish person who doesn't know from where they come. May ayin hin where the strength of our neshama comes from. There is no level of information that can ever come close to describing the power of the Jewish neshama. Can't. And we have to believe in that power. Amazing. So we need some clarity. Um, here's a question that somebody sent in. Let me read a second. When talking about generational trauma. So we all grew up with human parents that had their unresolved issues. What are we meant to do not to continue the cycle? And is it so simple to just talk about it? Or do we need to do a deep trauma therapy to disrupt it? So, so in terms of, in terms of, you know, ensuring that transgenerational trauma not inform, you know, our generation, I think it's one of my favorite psychological essays is something called, it's a short one, but it's called the clinical fear of breakdown. And basically what this child psychiatrist said, a wonderful person, Donald Winnicott was not Jewish, but he was a beautiful psychoanalyst of, of play therapy and, and fantasy and imagination, very healing, healing ideas. He says that more often than not, clients will come into his office with a singular perception that there is some imminent breakdown, something bad is going to happen, something I don't want to happen rests just around the corner of my consciousness. And all psychological neurosis emerges from there. And he says, sometimes my only job as a therapist is to sit them down in the comfy chair and to calmly tell them, stop worrying so much. The thing you're afraid of already happened. It already happened. There's nothing to run from already. The thing broke already. Transgenerational trauma is not necessarily something that is within our free will to ensure that it doesn't get transferred to the next generation, especially when we see it in the realm of epigenetics, that it, it happens it happens underneath conscious awareness. It's not like I'm seeing the previous generation function and I am learning the same ways of functioning, in the, even though that can happen as well. But my entire sense of self is in response to how I was raised. And so the transgenerational transference has already taken place. The knowledge that there's trauma in the previous generation, the awareness that we can contextualize the behaviors and the functioning of the previous generations without minimizing the respect that we have for our parents and the recognition that we can become aware of the fact that yes, our parents, the parent generations underwent certain things which led to the way that they function, that can help me learn to orient myself towards those generations that I look at, to help me let go of the resentment, to help me become aware of the narrative and then learn the work of how to fix that narrative or how to figure out a, a therapeutically beneficial way of reorienting. Does that make sense? So talk therapy and, and ultimately the therapeutic process of learning how to navigate the very delicate boundaries of self-development will always be necessary. But acknowledging 
the fact that the previous generation went through something. And in truth, that previous generation went through what they went through because the generation prior to them went through what they went through. And it's a trickle-down process all the way back up to Adam Arishon. That we're all in one singular process experiencing the same pulsation of that trauma of the Khed of the Eight Sadas and being kicked out of Gan Eden and encountering the Laha Tachar that rotating fiery sword at every fiber of our experience. The question is not so much how do I ensure that it doesn't get transferred, but rather how do I become aware of what's taking place and utilize it for my betterment? Like we said, we don't get rid of the traumatic kernel of what it means to be a human being. We learn to wrestle Amuna from it. We learn to acknowledge that, okay, I don't know what's going to happen, so I might as well learn how to be comfortable without knowing or in any other given scenario. My parents were this way, so I'm going to learn how to try and function in a different way. So I don't think there's a way to prevent transgenerational trauma from taking place. And I think it would be it, it, not faulty. No, we're not, we're not, we're not celebrating, we're not celebrating pain. We're not celebrating suffering. We're not celebrating difficulty. Right? We're not, we're not chewing the marrow and feeling that this is the most important thing that I ever had to do. But we're we're living life and realizing that causes have effects and that's the reality and instead of mourning it and instead of trying to run away from it and instead of pretending that the previous generation's narrative has no impact on who i am let me uncover the narrative structure and retell the story let me write the new chapter of the family story and so instead of fighting against the transgenerational influence whether it be traumatic or insightful it should it, i think a healthier way is how do i own that and 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 utilize it to my betterment. How do I live that story? What about Jeremy? Let's go to the next live question. You're on. Hi, how are you? Good. I have actually a lot of questions, but I'll boil it up to two questions. The question where you said that uh, where we live in trauma, what trauma does actually is that it gives us a sense of we have to predict everything and have knowledge of everything that's going to happen. And it becomes a very big reality and kind of, I shouldn't say it is a reality, but based on my previous experiences, it's a reality, right? I have a certain prediction that tomorrow I'll be in an office at three o'clock, for example. It's kind of a reality and my whole life is kind of a prediction. So my question is, how do I get into a life where it's not a, my, my prediction is not going to be reality? That's my first question. And my second question is, is why that the negative things that we do feel very much reality and the positive things feel like it's an act, meaning the, when we dive in, but then when we do something, let's say, regular mm -hmm. mundane stuff or a negative thing, that feels like the real ourselves, but when we dive in, it like a show. So that's basically mm -hmm. my two questions. I, I want to just, I want to just to orient myself to the first question, just to better understand it, meaning how does one transition from, from that frustration when things don't go the way I want them to learning to develop a tolerance of that frustration? Okay, so I'm going to assume that that's the, I'm going to assume that that's the first question. So the, the problem is when I expect, when I expect something, so anytime that expectation is not met, it's going to lead to a resentment. Now, the reason that expectations lead to resentments is not because we're undeserving that our expectations be met. This is not about us. Our expectations, we can expect everything. We can demand riches from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Lama nigara, right? The entire Pesach Sheni is built on the Koyach of the Jewish Neshama to demand what it naturally feels that it needs. Like Rabbi Nachman said, that the biggest Rachmanis in the world is a Neshama that doesn't know its own power. But 
in this world, in Olam Ha'asiya, in, in the lowest part of this world, what we're experiencing is that expectations lead to resentments. More expectation, more resentment. Because reality is not going to give me exactly what I want. Even if it gives me 99.9% .9 of what I want, that 0.1% is enough, as Chazal have taught us, to traumatize the entire system, to throw the entire system into whack. And so acceptance is the answer to all of my problems today, as it says in, in, in the, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I come to acknowledge that it is not so much about what is taking place in my life, but rather how I orient myself to what is taking place within my life, that is going to be the freeing narrative. I am never in control of what's happening. Yes, within the framework of my Nekudas HaBechira, of orienting myself towards how I'm going to function and what I expect or what I want my day to be like, or what I can plan my day to be like, planning does not mean expectation. Planning is this is how I would like reality to unfold today, but I am fully and fundamentally aware of the fact that it might not turn out that way. If I wake up in the morning and say, I'm leaving work, I'm leaving for work at eight, I'm going to get there at nine. That's what everything is. And that's how it's going to happen. The traffic jam is going to be a trauma. And I'm going to suddenly be thrown into a position of, oh my God, what I wanted is not what I'm getting. And it's not fair. But if I wake up in the morning and I say, Hashem, I have plans for today. Here's how I would like my day to go. These are my hopeful goals of the day, but I'm with you. And whatever happens today, I'm with you. So I'm going to do my best to kind of create the circumstances where my life will lead me to the goals that I would like to accomplish. But at the very same point, I'm fully and fundamentally aware that I am not control of the narrative of the day. And so when I get into my car at eight o'clock with all of my hope and natural planning to get to work because I have a meeting at nine, when a traffic jam comes, I'm going to be less traumatized. It doesn't mean I'm going to celebrate the traffic jam, God forbid. Traffic is traffic. Traffic is difficult. But instead of cursing under my breath now and being resentful at reality and God who created this reality and put me in this terrible reality where I'm going to be late for my work, instead, okay, I'm in traffic and I can reorient myself and I save myself such an immense amount of mental energy of mourning and questioning and worrying, and I learn to lean into the path of acceptance. So it, it's it's moving from a state of expectation into a state of planning that has acceptance built into it. So that's the that's the first thing. That's the first thing. And in terms of the second thing, and in this, I wanna I, I do want to bring up a, a childhood book that I that I grew up with, which I really think kind of helped me understand this. It was Alexander and the the very the the no good, very bad, horrible day. This is a story I was read as a child that this child, Alexander, just has a terrible day. Everything from left to right. He has expectations from A to Z, and ultimately each of those expectations are disappointed and frustrated. And each and every time something goes wrong, he says, and it was a no good, very bad, horrible day, and I just want to go to Australia. He had his drug of choice. Australia was the promise, right? Everyone has their thing, which promises to alleviate them from the pains of this worldly experience. And so every time he encounters a frustration, it's, and it was a no good, very bad, horrible day. And at the end, he goes to his mother, who was somewhat absent throughout the entire book. And he tells his mother about the no good, very bad, horrible day. And the mother ends with a single line. Sometimes there are days like that, even in Australia. And in the beginning of my life and reading it to my children when they were younger, you know, I said, what, what message is this? What exactly is being conveyed in this story? And then ultimately it, it came to me that this was a very deep truth that sometimes there are days like that, even in Australia. 
There is no perfect island that a person will go to where their expectations are going to be fully met. The shorish of disappointment is that an appointment is an appointed time. I have a time and a place in which I expect something to take place. Due to the expectations of that framework of Zman and Makom and the Tzimtzum that I've applied to it, so too, when reality doesn't align with that, I'm going to be disappointed. There's a disappointment. I expected something and I didn't expect something. But if the path of Bittal is what's orienting me, so I can plan with relinquishing control over the wheel. We very often act like children who are grabbing at the steering wheel with clenched fists, but in truth, it's just a toy steering wheel. We're shluchim. We're shluchim of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Every ounce of a person's experience is an act of being on shlichus from the Rabbana Shalom. And the tachlis of a shliach, the tachlis of somebody who's on a mission for the Rabbana Shalom, which is to reveal the light of comfort in this world, to draw down that light of Mashiach, which allows me to reorient myself to a way of looking, of seeing something broken and seeing it as built in truth, that work is just uncovering uncovering the ability to be okay, to be okay with what's happening, to recognize that I'm not in charge, relinquishing control. So much of the suffering doesn't come from the lack of control, but from the expectation of control. And then the frustrations and the disappointment that come along with the apparent loss of control. It's not a loss of control. It's just coming back to the recognition that I've never been in control in the first place. The more I identify with the shliach, which is Hashem, with the mishaleach, the, the less traumatized I'm going to be. Because it's not my world. It's not my plans. I have a mission. And if it works, it works. If not, I'll meander around it and I'll figure out how to make it work. Usher, are there more questions? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Want to say something? My real, question, my real question is how to get to the acceptance. It's uh, We live same. in our head where we want, we. I have my whole day figured out. I want exactly my day to go this way. I understand Hashem is the one who runs it, but on, my, on the same time is, I want my day to go like this. It's not like maybe yes, maybe no. It's like... The, the desire, but, but the desire is real. Desire for things to operate in the ideal form is a healthy thing. And it comes from a place of know, knowing that that's really what we deserve as as the Jewish neshama, not based on any action, but because why shouldn't it be that a Jew's desire gets fulfilled? That's how Metziah should be. But there's an element that the world as it operates right now is in an exilic position, which means to say that the alignment between my desire and the outcome of reality is not what's going to happen. And so what I need to learn how to do, not need, but the, the suggestion, and again, there's infinite eights of this, and, and none of them work, and all of them work in different moments. But over here, it's humble expectations, beginning with humble expectations, before going from expectations to no expectations and trying to radically shift from one edge to the other, humble expectations. Reasonable joy and happiness is a reasonable path. And so let me identify what are the hidden expectations and those points of contact where when reality doesn't go my way, I become frustrated. Let me identify if there are seven or eight nodal points along the narrative of my day. Let me see each of them. Let me identify them. And let me say, I will continue to live with five of these, but let me soften two of them. And which two of these can I learn to tolerate? Along with, along with learning to live beyond expectations is the deepest secret of all, which is that to be a human being in this world is to learn how to tolerate this world. That HaKadosh Baruch Hu is referred to by the Svarim of Ishbitz as Soivel Kol Alman. He tolerates all worlds. 
We have to learn how to be tolerant. We have to learn how to be patient. And we have to realize that I can tolerate discomfort and discomfort does not translate into impossibility. The root of addiction, the root of suffering is the fake equivalence between difficult and impossible. When I assume that something difficult is impossible, I live within a position of avoiding anything difficult and being terrified of anything difficult and living with an addiction to anything that alleviates difficulty because I'm terrified of difficult. Why? Because I've been convinced by myself or by others that difficult is impossible. Recovery, healing is coming to terms with the fact that it's difficult, but it's not impossible. And once a person can cultivate the necessity of bearing the burden to one degree or another of, of there is work that needs to be done and, and living in a place where I have to learn that my expectations are not going to be met is very difficult because it's relinquishing control. And it's, it's, it's Gehenim in this world. It's the, it's the Kafakela. It's being thrown one way or another. And a person has to go through an Ahardinor in order to do that. But you will come out on the other side with more acceptance and less expectation and more of an identification with Shavisi Hashem Lenegdi Tamid, whatever it is that's happening, whether it's within the framework of what I want to happen or whether it's not in the framework of what I want to happen. But first and foremost, identifying the things that have to happen in order for it to be a functional day, whether it be professional, familial, etc. And then once I've identified the core things that I need to happen today, then let me kind of start letting go of all of the other expectations, which I really don't need. That's a great answer. Thank you. Okay, beautiful. Okay, Roosevelt, next question. You're on. All right. Um, I was wondering, this is kind of related to the very first question, how you define trauma. but it's, It could be like certainly one very negative effect, but what about somebody who goes through a series of traumas, like, you know, abusive family uh, environment. I mean, isn't that a little bit harder to, I, I don't know, as far as over overcome? I mean, you can say, uh, you know, you have like a pat answer, oh, uh, somebody's just a certain way because their father died when they were 12, 12 or something. But I find my experience of well, impersonal as well as other people like some, you know, didn't grow up in the best of environments. And there was often quite a few curveballs. let's put it that way. It's not just something that, you know, everything goes wrong in life, you know, you know, things come out of left field, but you're yeah. talking about real pathology, you know, pathology, so yeah. psychopathies, I don't know, whatever. Well, it, 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 yeah. it's an amazing question. First and foremost, it's an amazing question. And, 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 yeah the most important question that can be asked, which is mm -hmm. ultimately, you know, theory is, is wonderful, but how does it apply itself across the board in practice? Yeah. And, and in scenarios where a person has, you know, severe and complex trauma, which we spoke about before, and they're operating within a, a worldview that is not skewed, but because of their experiences, mm -hmm. operates within a particular subset of rules and regulatory principles and, and perceptions mm -hmm. of what reality should be, that is where kind of real trauma work is most mm -hmm. beneficial. Mm -hmm. And the various modalities of traumatic work are in accordance with and we're developing, meaning the, the unfolding stages of mm -hmm. traumatic offerings and, and help for mm -hmm. trauma in its acute form and its complex form is, is an open field that is growing. It's a field of a profound kind of redemptive capacity. Mm -hmm. But it demands, meaning first and foremost, individualized care 
in to the degree that one must respect their story. Mm-hmm. And if I don't respect the intensity of the story, then I'm not going any any attempt that I have to wrestle meaning from the story will be overwhelmed by the, mm-hmm. the viciousness of the story. So it takes acknowledging the trauma. Now, on a molecular level, if we were to microscopically look at the very content, the DNA mm-hmm. of what's taking place within the psyche in relationship to mm-hmm. one trauma or the other, there will come a point where we can go down, down, down into the irreducible content that makes up trauma. And we can see that, oh, this is the very same content that the other person who's experiencing trauma mm-hmm. from, from the car accident is experiencing. But that doesn't mean they're the same. Yeah. The intensity yeah. and the the various colors. And so there is no immediate answer. There is no immediate answer. Mm-hmm. What I would recommend also, one thing that I would recommend is a person wants to develop their own inner voice. There's a voice that survives mm-hmm. all other voices. There's a voice that continues to be present, especially the, the, the mm-hmm. resilience, the resiliency that a person develops through going through a traumatic life is the Nikudatova. Identify with the resiliency. Identify with the fact that in spite of the fact that I've gone through so much, here mm-hmm. I am. And when a person identifies this in this week's parsha, Vayechi, Yaakov screams out Vayechi specifically in Mitzrayim to remember that it's specifically from within the constrictions and within the traumatic narratives of our lives that we are able to really reveal the Koyach of Vayechi. And so first and foremost, to utilize the perspective of positivity mm-hmm. oneself to realize that, you know, I am here still. And then finding ways of self-expression, writing, speaking, mm-hmm. voice, singing, finding something where a person feels that silence of self, mm-hmm. whether it's drawing and kind of developing one's own strength. But there's no, there's no cook, again, out of respect for the question, I'm not going to be able to give an answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, Roosevelt, let's go to the next live question you're on. Hi, um, thank you very much. Um, I wanted to know, first of all, could it be that somebody experienced something that other people would consider traumatic, but they don't seem to be traumatized? Does that necessarily mean that they are disassociating? Or could it be that they're just more, their nature is more to adapt? It's a great, it's, it's, it's a really good question. Now, in Gadol, in large, meaning if we're looking at people from different perspectives, meaning what is traumatic for one person, if a person hears a gunshot in in New York, right? So that might be considered traumatic, while a person who is living in a war-torn area might hear missiles and bombs all the time, and they are not going to consider that as traumatized. That fits in with the relative positioning of trauma, that trauma ultimately is the unexpected entering into what was expected and shattering the perception of the expected. But if I've made room for all of these unfortunate elements of reality, then it's not so unexpected anymore. So from that perspective, certainly something can be traumatic for one person, while at the same point, it's not going to be traumatic for another person. But in terms of let's say we're dealing with a cohort of individuals who are ultimately coming from the same background and the same developmental space and the same upbringing. And some are reacting to a traumatic episode and one person is not reacting to a traumatic episode. I do believe that in a scenario like 
bad, especially if it's a child and especially if there's not any evidence-based reason why that child should be or why that person should be reacting with calm. So then you do want to utilize the therapeutic tools necessary not to ensure that this child be traumatized, not to say, why can't you get through your head that you've been traumatized here, God forbid, and forcing them into a narrative of, you know, being afraid and being, you know, displaced and dissentered. But to address it and to kind of kind of therapeutically in the healthiest way, address the fact that, you know, there's something that happened and your response, not to orient it towards their responses. I'm have talking more about matters. like like an, like, you know, an adult who's been through, you know, different challenges and life hasn't been easy for them. And people will look at them and say, how could you be so normal? You know, something like that. Like, how, uh, sure. how is so, it that so you're OK? It's, it's specifically because of what a person has gone through that they're okay. It's specifically because of the strengths and the need for muscles to reflect and react to the experiences at hand that give a person the ability to to be okay. Like we said, every every trauma that comes about, every trauma that comes about holds within it the potential of the way of moving away from that trauma. From the, meaning the, the assault on our minds of what is to be expected and coming to terms with the fact that, wow, the world is not going to give me what I expect. And again, fit that into any example of a person's experience with trauma, cultivating that perception of, okay, I know that I'm not necessarily going to get what I expect, and I'm going to have to learn to live life on life's terms. That itself is going to be why I'm able to function as an individual. Yeah, I hear that. In the yeah. future. But so much of it depends on, on, on privilege of having support systems in place. Having mm -hmm. a healthy framework of family, resources play a major role into this. There is privilege inherent within the way that individuals react to the traumatic episodes of their lives, in spite of the fact that there's an equal opportunity at the neshama level of reacting to it. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then, um, thank you. Um, then I wanted to know also, you said before about um, generational trauma. Is it yeah. necessary for, you know, if you see that you have, your child is carrying um, trauma from, you know, somewhere in his past, be it a parent or a grandparent, is it necessary for them to recognize that that's where the trauma came from? Or do we just want to address the trauma without making him recognize it, where it's coming from? It's a really good question. And ultimately, Look, insight is curative and, and becoming aware of, of where our experiences come from and where our framework or orientation comes from is, is really therapeutically beneficial. But it certainly takes a backseat to the management of any symptoms that might be arising as a result of a trauma. And when it comes to engaging with the particular symptoms in the day-to-day -day or in the, in the less ab abstract sense, so there it's not so necessary to uncover kind of the origin of the trauma as long as the child is not still being exposed to the origin of the trauma. Meaning if there is, it, meaning what I don't think would be healthy is if the child will intuitively have an awareness of where the trauma is coming from, whether they know or not. On the level of the unconscious, there is no limit to what the mind knows in spite of the fact that it doesn't know it. And a child, much more than an adult, will be sensitive to that kind of sense. And so there might not be a need to kind of define exactly where the trauma came from at that particular point in the individual's life. But I don't think that translates into living life 
as if nothing has happened and exposing that child to whatever source of the trauma might be. Does that make sense? Um, I know I don't exactly understand if it's, if it's, um, there, let's say it's a parent, right? So it's somebody that they're constantly, um, spending time with, right? So subconsciously they might be accepting the trauma. Is that how it works? Meaning like they're, they're, and the parent and the parent is the one who perpetrated the trauma. No, not necessarily. It's just that you're seeing the parent experience trauma. And then you're seeing the child acting as if the trauma happened to him because he he has the same like he's Ah, 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 whatever, okay. whatever. Sorry, I um, think I misunderstood the question. You're saying when you see a child experiencing, you know, what we're referring to as a transgenerational trauma, where they're beginning to live out the same narratives of the previous generation, is it important to is it important to inform them of the context from where that might be coming from so that they can yeah. extricate themselves from it? Absolutely. I think that I think that, look, especially with with our generations, which are, are no more than one or two generations removed from the Holocaust. I think that um, I think that we owe it to ourselves to, to own our legacy. I remember very strongly and, and this this will lead to the answer. When I started working as 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 a, a therapist, I'm a, I'm a social worker. So my first my first um, my first year of practicum was in the Bronx in a, you know, a, a program associated with the criminal justice system for, you know, African-American and Latino populations who had been engaged in, in real severe types of crime and real different type of lifestyle than a five towns Jewish boy. And I was wearing, I was fresh back from Eric Israel and I was, you know, newly in my minted white Brooks Brothers shirt, you know, my belt, my safer, everything. And I walk into the Bronx and you know, I, I sat at the top of this entire mega system was the one Jewish woman who's like the CEO of the whole thing, who was an amazing therapist, very attuned to psychoanalytic approaches. And, and we she was a wonderful supervisor. But I asked her one of the first things I asked was, should I wear my white shirt and my black pants? Should I wear should I wear this? And she says, when people look at you, what they are going to identify is suffering, faith and survival. Use this to your benefit. And I never looked back. Whenever I was working in 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 a non-Jewish rehab center, you know, teaching Hasidus to to heroin addicts who had never heard anything about Jews, it was with tzitzis out, not because I was trying to convey anything, but because a person needs to be true to their narrative. A person needs to live their story. We're all characters in a story. We're all characters in a story. Ah, Surly, I forgot to answer Surly Gordon's second question. But um, but we're all characters in the story and we have to be true to our part. And as long as we're true to our part, then we're going to be able to act out our part in the healthiest way possible. And so we we owe it to our children to allow them to know the 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 legacies that very often may have carried trauma to them. But when it comes to, uh, you know, if there was a particular trauma of of a sexual sort or or some violent trauma, I don't think that the particular details need to necessarily be conveyed to each incoming generation. But in the more yeah. generalized sense, I think it's healthy to convey the story of difficulty, not because of the difficulty, but because of the survival and the perseverance that comes out of the difficulty. And help and and maybe help them understand that this is not their trauma like is 
is that what we're trying it's it's i mean it's it's it is their trauma it is their trauma and it disseminates itself across generations it doesn't mean that i'm not sitting here as a grandchild of survivors i'm not sitting here feeling like i'm a victim of the holocaust but what i am sitting here feeling is that you know the stability of anything in this world is far less stable than i would ever consider and that things are far more delicate than they actually are and in truth yeah the gas chambers of auschwitz are not my trauma because i was never there But the outcomes and the outgrowths and the symptoms of experience that come about from such a collective experience, those are my traumas. So it's not the, 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 the science of epigenetics is that we want to kind of enable children to understand that, yes, life, life is a difficult thing. Life, life does feel this way sometimes. And by acknowledging that, we give our children strength to kind of develop the tools to, in spite of the difficulty, to learn how to navigate and find pathways of health. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Can I ask one more question? Uh, sure. Yeah, I don't mind, but... Okay, thanks. Um, how do you help a young child, like a 10-year-old, um, adapt to, you know, when they have expectations and they don't come to fruition? How do you help them adapt? Empathizing with them. First and foremost, empathizing with them that their frustrations and their expectations that are being missed and not responded to are legitimate and that they're real and that this is what life is sometimes, that there are expectations that don't get met. Instead of trying to suture the wound and, and kind of sew it all together because we feel our children are overreacting to, to something that we perceive as small, We have to make our, instead of trying to make our children bigger than they actually are so that they can meet us where we feel we're at, we have to learn how to make ourselves smaller than we feel that we actually are to meet our children where they're at. And when we empathize with the child's frustration, we can then enter into their space with them and kind of help them navigate what it is that, you know, yeah, it didn't turn out the way you wanted it to turn out today. I know that must really, that must be really difficult. And it's not fun when things don't turn out the way I even know what that's like. And then to slowly but surely speak to them from their level. And when we respect, when we respect their frustration, as opposed to just laying it as nagging or whining, which it never is, So then, so then we will we will be able to help them navigate it more. Again, that's impossible to do it, at, on on a regular basis because the parent is also a person, and and we can't necessarily address every moment with full on mindfulness. But but this world is about finding the moments of calmness and trying our best to do what we can. I hear. Okay, amazing. Thank you very much. Sure. Okay, well, let's go to the next live question. You're on. Hi, my question is about collective trauma and how, when we're experiencing a collective trauma as a community, how do we balance having compassion and sensitivity for ourselves and also for other people when we're all experiencing the same situation in so many different ways? Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's difficult. It takes it, it takes leadership each, you know, it takes a person knowing who to turn to sometimes in order to not leadership, but it takes a person having something to tether themselves to a kind of a model a lighthouse, if you will, a book, a tzaddik, a perspective, a teacher, 
a parent, someone I look up to, to help me navigate the process of, of what might be going on and the disruption. That's first and foremost. This is not meant to be a path that is walked alone, right? When things like this happen, when there's a disruption, when there's a collective trauma taking place, that's the time where each and every person needs to attach themselves to the people that they feel are trustworthy and that I can rely upon in terms of their insight and their knowledge base and their orientation. Again, with a healthy level of nullification to their ideas without an absolute dependence, etc. But I think that each person, and I'm, go I'm going to go to a, a more abstract spiritual place prior to bringing it down to a practical place, each person is a composite of the entirety of Klai Yisrael, right? One person who saves one life from Klai Yisrael is as if they saved the entire Klai Yisrael. Just as every mitzvah is a composite of all other 613 mitzvahs in a germ cell form, so to every moment, every person is an entire world. And so when I am experiencing my world undergoing the traumatic shift that it's undergoing, my job continues to be how do I navigate this to the best of my ability within the framework of my mind, my heart, my body, and my capabilities? And here's where it becomes super important not to allow oneself to fall prey to the tendency of kina, taiva, and kavod, which are all orientations of the self that are based on people outside of me. When we say that kina, taiva, and kavod, they take a person out of the world, what it means is that ha'adam nivra yechidi, and each and every person is created alone, and each and every person has to be able to say, it's my world. So when I start looking at other people's worlds and depending on their worlds to inform how I experience my world, that takes me out of my world. So really to identify what it is that I'm struggling with and to work on getting the help with that struggle and what it is that I can offer. What is the thing, what is the nikuda that I am capable of providing to Klai Yisrael and to HaKadosh Baruch Hu in this circumstance? Now, very often, chesed starts at home, as the saying goes. And in Hilchos Tzedakah, we see the same thing, that we are products of concentric circles, microsystems and macrosystems. So if I want to try and have an impact and I want to try and offer my services to one degree or another, I should start or I can start with the things that are closest to me. And slowly but surely, if I feel that I am taking care of myself in accordance with my own framework, and I am doing what I can in accordance with my capacity, that the world is just elevating with me. And the other people who come into contact with me are also going to benefit from the working through process that I'm going through. It brings to mind one of my favorite teachings from the Meshiloach based on a Pasuk that says that in the future, in the times of redemption, the cult sofayich, right? The, the voice of the watchmen are going to gather together. What is the multiplicity of voices over here, right? When it's ayin ba'ayin, when Mashiach comes, when there's a revelation that what is above is below and what is below is above and unity and disunity are equally representative of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's infinite light. So why is there a multiplicity of voices? Suzak the Meshiloach that each and every person goes through exile, each and every person goes through this world with the assumption that I am suffering in a way that is singularly unique and that the circumstances of my life and the failed expectations, et cetera, et cetera, are so unique that nobody is going to believe what I needed to go through in order to arrive at the point of redemption. The process that I have needed to walk, the path that I have needed to tolerate in this world is unlike anything else. Each person is going to feel that way and each person is going to come towards Mashiach that way. And they're going to meet their fellow neighbor. They're going to meet the person next to them. 
And just as they're about to begin to say, Achi, you don't be- you won't believe what I've gone through, their friend is going to tell the same story. The same story with different details. Their same friend is going to say, Achi, I got to tell you something. You have no idea what I had to get through to get here. And at that moment, everyone's going to realize that, oh my goodness, each and every one of us have gone through our own path of breaking and building and breaking and building and breaking and building and breaking and building until the point that we arrive at redemption. So the way that we engage with our own inner pain while trying to offer support and relief to those around us is by continuing to do what works spiritually for us, what continues to bring about the most good in my own experience and that nukudatova that I can reveal within other people in the world. So I still think it continues to be that even when it's a klal-oriented work, we are the klal. Each person is a klal. The klal and the prat are equal. The 600,000 souls of klal Yisrael are not 600,000 parts that compose a whole. They are 600,000 holes. When all of those holes are unified together, they create a whole that is greater than the sum total of all of those holes. But there's nothing that is not whole. Each and every person is the entirety of existence. So when I'm working on myself, Mela, the things around me are going to benefit. Okay, thank you so much. Amazing. Here's, a, here's another question. We were, str- we were struggling with, with our shalom bias. My husband has been in, in and out of therapy for years and didn't see any real relief. And now he joined groups that do psychedelics. I must say, I do see an improvement. He's slowly getting back to have an okay day. But I'm concerned, is this something that will last? And I would like to know your thoughts in general about psychedelics. So so first and foremost, in, in I'm not I'm not a mumcha. I'm I'm not an I'm not an expert. I'm I'm an observer. I'm an observer of of the field and, and the and the growing orientation towards the field. First and foremost, in the in the particular context, if if the questioner is asking for my inner ear on it. That 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 type of psychedelic usage is not going to last, and that type of I mean, halavai it should provide some lasting change where the person is able to extricate themselves from their unhealthy behaviors and the unhealthy ways of functioning. But psychedelics used to provide a, a moment of momentary relief, only to fall back down again into the lack of insight or the same patterns of behavior, then waiting for the next time that I can use psychedelics in order to experience or excuse me while I kiss the sky and, you know, try and try and exit from the stuckness. That's no different than an addiction and and any substance usage that provides insight for a moment and then brings me back down, right? The fact that it is having a, a positive impact or a spark of a positive impact is is the nature and the natural outcome of what these substances do. They provide a general sense of well-being. They provide a euphoric sense. They give an image to a person of insight that is simply potential and not actualized. And ultimately, the fact that a substance provides a perspective of calmness does not by any means necessary give an inherent value to that substance. Chazal themselves, within the framework of, of yayin and within the framework of alcohol, they said that a shikur, somebody who is intoxicated, the entire world appears as if it's a straight plane. It appears that everything is normal. And the Beis Yaakov of Ishbit says this is exactly why an intoxicated individual cannot pray. Because prayer is the opposite of feeling that everything is fine. Prayer is the opposite of feeling that everything is normal and everything is whole. And so simply because something makes me feel whole 
does not mean that it is providing an actual spiritual or psychological benefit. And in terms of the pop-up groups of people engaged in psychedelic usage, I think that it, well, let me start from, psychedelics is, is a, a generalized term that can mean many, many things. When it comes to understanding the possibility of the development of mind-altering chemicals that will provide therapeutic benefits to an individual who is in a state of acute suffering from one degree or another as a result of trauma, as a result of mental health issues, the science is still nascent. It's, it's a growing science. The evidence is not old enough to be an evidence-based, but speaking to psychiatrists and speaking to professionals in the field, the evidence that some of these substances are showing would would basically reorient the entire field of psychiatry, would completely kind of turn it upside its head because these things provide benefit. They do. They alleviate symptoms of PTSD. They alleviate symptoms of severe unmedicatable depression, et cetera, et cetera. And when studied on a molecular level beyond the packaging and the marketing and the political engagement, there's no distinction necessarily between somebody who might be using MDMA versus somebody who's using an SSRI. But the important piece here is that it need be under supervision of somebody who knows the power of these medicines, the power of these substances, which is difficult because it's still not a legalized process, which Mamela puts a person into a territory of people who are not being checked by regulatory standards, which becomes dangerous. But I think that the over-exuberance and the quickness in which we are accepting this miraculous power of all substances, which is how most people will kind of approach it, even though the nuance is there in the people who are speaking about it, is is a, an unfortunate truth that Kleistral does regularly, where we're ochopega. We see something that could potentially provide some redemptive quality, and we say, sign me up and and you know, give me all of it prior to prior to you know really knowing. And what that does is what it will relate to is that if if we misuse something that can be beneficial, the symptoms and the unfortunate consequences that will come about as a result of the misuse will also undo the possibility of actual help these things would have offered. So that's that's the first thing. But I do think that when it comes to understanding the utilization of mind-altering substances, psychedelics, and understanding what the nature of psychedelics are, what the difference are, I think that my only my only suggestion in the matter is if you have a therapist that a person is working with, and it's a therapist that a person trusts, and the therapist who has been working with the individual feels that this is something that will be beneficial to kind of overcome a particular boundary. And that therapist has the tools and the wherewithal to ensure that this person is going to be able to go through it in a healthy way. And most significantly with supervision to one degree or another, as well as maintained development of insight. The experience itself might actually have a real neurological benefit, but that neurological benefit is far less actualized in terms of our daily lives and the insight that a person might gain. And what that means is that it needs to be done within the context of a therapeutic context, is, is what I would say in terms of in terms of psychedelics. And then within the framework of each and every person's, you know, what they refer to as local Orthodox rabbi, right? But um, but um, with the Lubavitch Rebbe, when Lubavitch Rebbe was dealing with uh, this in an early stage, the letter is very informative. When asked about the utilization of LSD for the sake of, you know, therapeutic... So I saw that letter. So I read that letter. Therapeutic and or spiritual benefits, Lubavitch Rebbe, as far as I understand, was very clear on the fact that when it comes to psychiatric or medical care, that is not my tchum. 
and you ask and you check with the professionals. You check with a professional in the field. And hopefully, Klal Yisrael will figure out how to develop a perspective of who are the professionals here, who are the people who can be trusted, who are the people who are not manipulative, who are the people who are doing this with regulations, who are the people, et cetera, et cetera, and will develop a process. Meaning, I don't think the answer is to run away from the possibility of it. But when it comes to spiritual development, what the Lubavitcher Rebbe seems to really identify is that this is not the way. But then what the Lubavitcher Rebbe doesn't identify, which I think is a gray territory in our lives, is where the, the pathology or the trauma or the medical element is deeply connected to the spiritual development, where it's the traumas of how we've been raised or the perspective that we've been forced to live with. And, and where does that in-between stage fall out with relationship to these medicines? And for that, I don't have an answer yet, but... And let's go to the last live question. I have one more question afterwards. Okay, Gidon. All right, so actually a few questions, but two of them are kind of tefil, one of them is Iker. I'll just start with the, the first two I have. So just in terms of recovery, so how does one balance self-compassion taking easy against, say, accountability, responsibility, progress? Mm -hmm. I, in terms of a person who's he's fallen, he's broken his arm, you're not going to ask him to help bring a fridge up the stairs. Yet he still has... Yes, because the life has obligations. It's not a, it's not a ticket to get out. And so, obviously, it's a general question, but how does one balance those two, those two sides? Uh, the other thing is, in terms of responding to what you said, sorry, um, in terms of faking to make it, I have a sort of bias against that phrase. I was wondering, is there a difference between faking to make it and uh, sort of a commitment to a goal? Or right, every day I'm going to be committed to the same thing. But I'm still going to be present to my thoughts and feelings about uh, whatever this thing I'm committed to is. Even if I don't like it, I'm still committed. The last one, this is one that I guess, so there are many ideas that a person might hear in, 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 in Torah and Kedusha that, that he might take very difficultly. I one thing comes to mind, let's say a person struggling with depression, he might hear that, you know, says in all sorts of different sperm that's usher to be usher to be sad. And so a rabbi will tell him, hey, the, the, you know, the Torah is speaking to you healthy, well-adjusted, stable person. So I'm wondering, are there any sperm who are speaking to somebody who's in recovery, who is dealing with these struggles, and is coming from that type of perspective? Wow. Okay, so help me if I help me if I need you to remind me on, on some of the questions. Sure. Um, so the first question being, how does one balance the, the process of being easy on oneself yes. while maintaining the accountability of kind of what needs to be done on the day-to-day? Right. Yeah. And so and so I think that the equivalency between being kind with oneself and and the lack of productivity is a is a post-traumatic symptom. It's a it's a perspective that's born out of this kind of bias towards suffering and a bias towards the need to suffer for the sake for growth and, and to and to beat ourselves up in some Protestant ethic that I have to continuously feel that there's a fire burning under me. And if I'm not stopping, then I'm going to fall apart. The, the, the calmness needs to be the framework. The calmness is the, the canvas upon which the day is going to be painted. It's the beginning, it's the middle, and the end of the day. And what that means on a practical level is that I have to orient myself with actual practices to connect to that positivity bias and that willingness to see all things of today within a framework of growth. And that means in the morning, and that means in the afternoon, and that means at night. So the bookends of my day need to be affirming the positivity of experience, 
calming myself and living my life with less of an intense demand for perfection, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason I want to bookend my day like that, because if I bookend my day, it's as if I've been thinking about it all day, right? If a person does something twice, it's as if they've done it forever. So by framing it before I encounter the world of other people and after I leave the world of other people and reaffirming for myself my center and accepting myself wholeheartedly with the acknowledgement of that there's certain parts of myself that I would like to change, that doesn't mean that I can't accept them. Acceptance doesn't mean I love this thing, I want to live with this thing forever. Acceptance means that this is who I am right now, this is how I am right now, and I'm going to learn how to slowly but surely develop. Then within that framework of the comforting knowledge that I'm okay, that's where I need to kind of continue to work on things that I need to do in order to ensure that I'm okay. I'm a big believer in having a task-oriented day. So if it's six things that I need to do for my recovery that are yaharog v'yol ya'avor, that I can't go to bed at night if I haven't accomplished these things, then it's very healthy to have a checklist for oneself where I accomplish these things and the rest of the things that I'd like to accomplish, maybe yes, maybe no. But there should be a rubric of a person being able to say that hatzlachti hayom, I had a successful day. And in early recovery or any stage of recovery, which really can be applied to any stage of life or any type of life, it's going to be the, the baseline of acceptance and then entering into responsibility without this feeling that if I don't accomplish this, I'm not good enough. That's what keeps us away from accomplishing our goals because we're stuck within the we're stuck within that narrative. But when I realize that I can do my best, I have to accomplish the things I need to accomplish, then I can operate from a place of non-judgmentality and not beating myself up. Does that make sense? Okay, the second question, remind me the second question. Um, yeah. You don't? Second, yeah, second question is, um, I'm just, in terms of the idea of faking to you make it, um, ah. I'm wondering, is there is there a difference between that and just having commitment to the goal? You know, whatever happens, what, but even the, just being present to, despite mm -hmm. the fact that just being present to the fact that hey, you know, I don't feel the greatest about this goal. I'm still going ahead and I'm still going ahead and taking care of it. Yeah, I think that I think that in term, I, I think that fake it until you make it. The reason I, I know that it's a frustrating term to hear. But but I think it's it's Hasidus that really has the ability to provide the, the true understanding of the term, which is that the, the typical orientation towards faking until you make it is that there's a distinction between faking it and making it of inauthenticity and authenticity. And if you begin with the inauthentic act enough, even though you don't feel it, then you'll come to graduate and, and live the real thing itself. And what that does is it creates a distinction between how I'm functioning now and how I would like to function. And that's where that's where we struggle, right? When when there's a gap between who I am and who I feel I should be at the moment is where I'm going to kind of be caught up in all of my self-judgments. And so faking it until you make it in a healthy way, I think is far more the mechanism of Chazal, which is Ki'ilu, that it's as if I'm doing something. That in spite of the fact we live very often with the assumption that I need to know something and feel something intuitively in order to be able to follow through with that activity. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to show that the Misa is the Iker. We're utilizing the, the pivot point of action 
and we've come to realize that action is not necessarily dependent on the feeling of the heart or the activity of the mind. And in fact, it has the ability to reorient the feelings of the heart and the activity of the mind. So I can continue to engage in something in spite of the fact that I might not feel aligned with that, or in spite of the fact that I might not have absolute certainty over the task at hand, because I have identified that this is something that I would like to do, and this is something that's beneficial for me, Faking it until you make it is ultimately allowing myself to be okay not feeling it. I don't have to feel it in order to do it. And eventually, if I'm okay not feeling it, then I'll develop a new way of thinking about what it should feel like. Does that make sense? Yes. Meaning, yeah, and I think that the process you're describing is really the way that that happens. You're saying that I identify a goal for myself. And once I've identified a goal for myself, now irrespective of how I feel about the steps needed to arrive at that goal, I am going to get to that goal. That's the secret of mitoch shalo lishma balishma. Generally we think, oh, there's lo lishma that will eventually come to lishma. But what the tzaddikim point out is that mitoch shalo lishma balishma, mitoch within the lo lishma, buried within the very kernel of inauthenticity is the depth of authenticity, which is that the most essential thing here is the action, especially in recovery. Recovery from some particular behavior or substance is one of the few places in life where we have a, a clear and clarified marker of what is successful for the day. In the end of the day in recovery, the goal is to not go back to the behavior that I am moving away from. And so to take comfort in that fact and to allow that to validate the rest of the experience. And in terms of the third question, so it's a very delicate question and it's a sensitive question of what to do with the Svarim HaKadosh and what to do with all of the books that we have on our shelves that seemingly speak away the possibility of being in certain emotional states where I feel stuck in. And so first and foremost, I think it's very important to make a distinction between sadness as these farm are referring to them or the spiritual moods that a person is experiencing and the clinical description of depression, which is something that falls upon a person. It's not a mood that I find myself in. It's a room that I find myself in. And when a person is depressed, it's not sadness. It's a lack of vitality. There's no chayas. That chayas has been removed from the individual's capacity to function. So when a person is reading something about sadness or atzvus or even marashchoyra, or even the tendency towards despondency or melancholia, which can be manipulated towards spiritual goals, but ultimately we really want to edge towards the side of simcha in spite of all things. But when these svarim are not talking necessarily, they are because they're talking to everything, but they're not coming to be prescriptive with regards to mental health symptoms. And if once we have that distinction at play and we're able to properly distinguish between something that is a, a form of mental health, which is not necessarily within my volitional choice to choose not to feel it versus the emotional freedom that I do have to reorient myself. So then a person wants to look at these Svar Makadoshim when they say that it's usher to be sad Asur liot be'atzvus, or you know, a person has to be happy at every moment. Especially a person finds this in in the writings of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov and his student Rabbi Nassan. It's very important to frame and contextually understand where that demand for joy was coming from. That demand for joy was born out of a recognition of that if I'm not pushing myself towards joy and choosing joy, then ozavaditi bioni. It wasn't the happiness that negated the possibility of sadness to one degree or another. 
it was a happiness that survived all forms of sadness. Rabbi Nachman kind of walked that path and said, okay, if a person lives their life in a certain way, sadness is going to overtake them and a person will not be able to survive. And so we have to fight tooth and nail against sadness because without fighting with every ounce of our energy to wrestle some element of reasonable happiness from this world, we're not necessarily going to be able to make it through the day. Let's let's do one last question. Somebody's texting me. I just want to read it. It's a very powerful question and uh, we'll go to the closing part, okay? Yeah, stay there. Okay. I'm a 19-year-old struggling teenager. I went through two traumatic experiences of sexual abuse in my childhood, both were caused by different people for different amounts of time. I was wondering if you have any powerful thoughts, inspiration that can keep in mind while journeying through these difficult times. What should motivate me to get out of bed in the morning? When I wake up, it means facing people in regular life. Sometimes it feels better to die than to face waking up in the pain so present that there's so much, it's so deep. What should I do when I feel so alone? Where should I turn to when I need a tight hug, but I have, not, I have absolutely nobody to give it to me? What am I supposed to feel when I watch all my friends moving on with their lives and getting married? building a family, remain stuck in a pit. I can't move on in life. I can't get married because marriage seems so scary to me. Any male figures seem to be a threat to me. Thank you very much. A painful question. And it's just, and, and this question is just a question amongst all of the other questions that are similar to this that can be asked. Meaning, in bias, in bomes. Chazak, chazak, benit chazek. This this process to be to be a, a neshama, to be a neshama that agrees to come down into a world where it's going to experience abject forms of pain, where it's going to experience a disruption, suffering of any kind. First off, Hakadosh Baruch Hu knows. Hakadosh Baruch Hu knows. Hakadosh Baruch Hu knows. Hakadosh Baruch Hu knows. So a person is never alone. In this process, a person can always encounter a deeper part of themselves, which as our tzaddikim revealed to us is nothing but our encounter with the Rabbani Shleilam. Every time we have a positive thought or comforting thought that enters into our heart, we're able to say, Hashem, you are the one breathing these thoughts into me. And anytime we have a desire to feel a little bit better, that is a grappling with a desire to reconnect to a Hashem that we may not have even begun to even know existed. A notion of the Rabbi Shalom's love and compassion and infinitude and vastness and unlimited nature that we have not even begun to taste. But there are certain Nishamos who are tasked, there are certain Nishamos who are tasked with the need to reveal light in dark places, every neshama of Klai Yisrael is forced to, is, that's our avoda, to reveal light in dark places. Now, there are some neshamos that come from places where the darkness is not so intense and the circumstances of their lives have not been too difficult. And yes, there's still darkness. And yes, their avoda is to overcome those territories of darkness and to draw their own personal light down into it. And that's as big of a revelation as somebody else. But then there are those neshamos who find themselves in a thickness of darkness in what the Balatanya describes as the darkness that's doubled over itself. What's the darkness that's doubled over itself? It means that there's darkness. I climb with every ounce of effort that I can out of the darkness, only to find that there's another layer of darkness right in front of me. It's enough to drive any person insane. I've just put all of this effort in to overcome, and now suddenly there's another mountain to overcome. But as the Lubavitcher Rebbe said, as the Lubavitcher Rebbe said to 
the Chavra from Kfar Chabad after the massacre that happened at Kfar Chabad. And after waiting for a long time for the Lubavitch Rebbe's answer as to what to do, the Lubavitch Rebbe opened his office door with swollen eyes from tears and he says, that the continuity of your effort is going to bring comfort. That the avoida of a neshama in this world, the avoida of a neshama in this place, is to persevere and to shine the light of the neshama in any ounce that it can, any slight movement forward that a person like this is experiencing is untold vistas and distances of spiritual growth that also has the ability to illuminate the life of others who go through the same experience, that there is a task that this neshama has. It's not to validate the experiences that they've gone through. It's not to romanticize the experiences that they've gone through. It's not to minimize the experiences that they've gone through. It's not to teach us to bend towards the suffering. But once we've done everything we can to move all of those things aside, what remains is our need to say, Hashem, my saying yes to you in this morning, me saying moida'ani, is a bigger nace than Matan Torah. It's a bigger nace than the, the creation of the world. It's a bigger nace than anything. My ability to find comfort and the wherewithal to continue in this moment today is as big a nace as Akedah Yitzchak. And when a person can allow their spiritual work to be informed by the vast power that it contains, specifically in encounters with Tohu like this, with a double darkness that is doubled and doubled, a person must value the work that lays ahead of them. That the value, I'm not talking about you will be rewarded. That's up to Hashem and that's our grappling with Hashem. It's about the avoid the here and now, the light that is revealed when a person who experiences such darkness has the capacity to inch their way ever forward and affirm the light in spite of that darkness is the biggest Kiddush Hashem imaginable. And it's revealing HaKadosh Baruch Hu's light in a way that it has never been revealed before and will never be revealed before again. That in this place of darkness, there has never been a person in this moment who has been capable of revealing Hashem in this place the way I am. And in that moment, each of us are Moshe Rabbeinu. Each of us are drawing down the light of HaKadosh Baruch Hu in a way that it was never drawn down before. And each and every person is the center of the universe. And the perseverance at the heart of our continuity and the tikva and the hope against hopelessness that we have is, is should be celebrated with, with a confidence and a joy and a comfort knowing that I am doing what I need to do in Bahemshik Binyanacha Tanachim, moving forward. Okay, Gavaldik, Roosevelt tonight was really deep. So again, first, let's go to closing now. Joey Roosevelt coming on live next year, waking up so early in the morning and giving us tremendous deep physic in the whole world of trauma in the Teradika's perspective and also just the general's perspective. Hashem, can't wait to, when you come back again, to go right there deeper into different subjects. Um, again, if anybody's here the first time, every Sunday night on this MyD, we have different shows on different topics. Hashem, we hope over the next uh, few uh, months to have a lot of very powerful programs. Hashem, hopefully, it's not 100% confirmed next week, December 24th, we're going to have a deep conversation with Rabbi Russell, um, it's going to be a topic of hopefully understanding chinuch and crisis chinuch a little bit. It should be a very deep and meaningful program. Please join us, let people know about it. Again, everything's recorded. Make sure we'll be on menachemberkel.com. If anybody has any questions, please email coachmenachemagimel.com. Tonight's share is share 167, and the show will be uploaded on all the podcasts and the YouTubes and 24-6 and all these other places that it goes, and also it's on the phone. At 848-777-GROW, that's 
Again, thank you to all the advertising sponsors that promote it, the Lakewood Scoop, Ellie Nari, Errol from Five Town Central, and Kyla Kaufman from JCN. And I'm just going to say for me, it was such a deep share and everybody's texting. Like, they're going to have to listen to this like again and again and again, just to really, the, the concepts are so deep. But uh, I'm going to go to Coach Menachem first and then Rabbi Roosevelt. After two and a half hours, I want you to encapsulate what your feelings are. Okay, Coach Menachem first. Um, nothing really to add. I just want to thank Robert Rosenfeld. <clears throat> it's been two and a half hours, and um, hopefully some people can get some physic, no matter where you are, and uh, in the darkest places, like we heard, and um, like we heard, you should reach out to somebody that can help you with your own thoughts. Because if you're sitting and grappling with the thoughts that you had for the past two minutes, how many years, to change that mindset. Many times you need someone to help you with that war. So I want to give a bracha for everyone. Hashem should help us all collectively and, and, and everybody in their own life. We should have we should see some nachama and amit Hashem we should zoycha for Mashiach. Amen. Amen. Leave us with a closing. Just a just a ma'isa, which is really my my favorite ma'isa in the world. There was a uh, there was a tzaddik. His name was Rav Menachem Mendel of Vitebsk, the Heliga Vitebsker. He was one of the first Talmidim of the Baal Shem Tov to to kind of come to Eretz Yisrael. The Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, identified him as one of his teachers. And the Vitebsker settled in the land of Tveria. The Vitebsker settled in the land of Tveria, and he lived in that place of redemptive kind of calmness and water and and the clarity of where Mashiach is meant to arrive from. And there was an announcement one day that Mashiach had arrived in Tveria. And the Tamidim of the Batebsker came running, running, running to their Rebbe. They came running to their Rebbe and they said, is it true? Is it true? Is Mashiach here? And the Batebsker was sitting in his office. He was sitting overlooking Tveria. And he had his shtender and his safer open. And he slowly but surely closed his book, stood up, went over to the window, stuck his head out the window, smelled the air, took a deep breath, turned his head back in and ultimately said, Mashiach is not here, went back, opened his Sefer and started learning again. And when the Tamidim came to him and they said, Rebbe, we believe you wholeheartedly. We believe you wholeheartedly that Mashiach is not here, but explain to us, why couldn't you have told us from where you were sitting? Why couldn't you have told us from where you were sitting? Why did you have to go and smell the air outside? And the Vitebsker said, because here where I'm sitting, Mashiach is already here. Here where I'm sitting, there's already an Avira of Gan Eden. There's already an element of Geula. Now, Avada, we want Mashiach Mamish, and Avada, we demand from Mashiach Mamish, and we need it quicker than now. Lubavitcher Rebbe was able to say, take it Mamish, quicker than immediate. It's a concept of time that shatters any concept of time, right now, even quicker than right now. But until then, what we have is Karvel Nafshi Giyola, the secret of any moment of comfort of the mind is Mashiach. Any process of realizing Hashem is a little bit more in my life, in the world than I thought beforehand, is the arrival of Mashiach. And when each and every person is able to uncover that secret of Mashiach that exists within us in this moment right now, eventually when Klai Yisrael wake themselves up to this, then we can have the Hesach Hadas necessary where Mashiach actually comes, Be'ezer Hashem. We should be zeichet to an kfula. We should be zeichet to be miyad, and that the Jewish people should be protected on every level, and that Mashiach Sidhenu should come already. And like Rabbi Nachman describes, that Mashiach is going to sit with every yid, every single yid, go through every encounter of their life, and write their megillah for them. That's what Mashiach is going to do. Yesh inyan sheyit 
there is going to be a slight second, even quicker than that, that transforms everything into the good. And we have to hold on and we have to be patient and we have to tolerate and we have to daven, daven, daven. And Be'ezer Sashem will be Zoycha. Yasha Koyach, Reb Menachem, Usher, and looking forward to, uh, and, you know, I do I, I do have a, a website. You can share whatever it is. And oh, so, so yeah, give, give the information out. I'm sorry. Sure. I think the best would just be to Google my name, but I, I have a practice where I see clients individually. I give a lot of shirim. Um, and so, but if there are questions, you know, anybody could reach out to me. I just, uh, Davin, that if I don't respond, please, please, please do not take it um, personally. What's the, what's the, what's the website? What's the information? Website is, uh, I'm even embarrassed to say it's joeyrosenfeld.com. Oh, wow. That's a hard one. <laughs> okay. Hard we'll one. try to remember that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, sure. Thank you for coming on. Really appreciate it. And Matshem, uh, good night, everybody. We'll see you same time, same place. On this is my day, December twenty fourth. Hopefully, Matshem with Rabbi Russell, and everybody should have a great night. Take care. Thank you.